Episode 734. Warning. Access restricted. Please submit to DNA. Verification. Processing. Verification complete. Access granted. Welcome. Well, hello there and welcome to the Monitor Room at the Christian Geek Central podcast, a biblical examination and celebration of geekery and geek entertainment, as well as the official podcast of ChristianGeekCentral.com. I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions. Boy, I took a drink just before I started this and moisture started gathering on my lips. That always weirds me out a little bit when you can... Just hear moisture on people's lips. It works well for me. Like, I appreciate the attention to detail when they'll do that in ADR in films. When someone's talking while it's raining and the rain is dripping down their face and you can tell that their lips are wet. I don't like it at other times. So, I'm sorry if you detected any of that. But anyway. (laughs) Producing entertainment and resources to hopefully equip, encourage, inspire Christian geeks like you and me to live in the freedom and purpose that Christ has given us. For more info about Spirit Blade Productions, you can check out spiritblade.com or patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions. On the show today, a review of the movie Troll on Netflix, a review of the series premiere for Willow on Disney+, and some thoughts on how geeks can prepare themselves to be social this Christmas by reflecting on the incarnation of Jesus. That's actually... Uh, in search of truth content from years ago, like I want to say in the 200s of the podcast when it was still branded as the Spirit Blade Underground podcast. And for both uh, time reasons and just, you know, because now and then I like leveraging since I've been doing this uh, long enough, leveraging some content I've already made, like, I'd like to do something on this. Oh, I've already talked on this before. Does this still hold up? Yeah, okay. Yeah, this works. So anyway, uh, it's... It, it's actually a little bit lengthy compared to other In Search of Truth segments, a bit more unscripted and unfocused. Uh, so I, if I were to do it again, I would focus in a little bit more on one central theme. But uh, despite that uh, little bit lack of focus, I was like, you know, there's stuff in here that's worth bringing to the table again. There was stuff, I mean, after I actually uh, made the decision to use it this week... Uh, and started editing it because I'm making an audio and and uh, a video version, excuse me, <laughs> of it to go up on Monday, just using the audio and then putting the verses up on screen when relevant. But anyway, revisiting it myself, I was like, oh man, this is relevant to me this Christmas as I kind of look at some particular social things coming up that might be a little bit taxing, uh, a little bit uncomfortable, you know, various situations we can find ourselves in, whether that's with family or just people we... <clears throat> you know, co-workers, maybe there's a work party or something like that. More social stuff is happening that we either uh, just choose to not engage with at all or we engage with and it's and it's difficult and challenging. And so uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so hopefully you guys will find that useful to uh, to kind of process a little bit. I must have been in a little in, in a extra emphatic mood as I was listening. I was like, I- I'm, I'm more emphatic here. <laughs> than I am these days. I think I'm a little more hesitant to just uh, put out there these, you know, uh, more strongly worded statements and just be like, uh, this is what I'm thinking, guys. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I hope you guys will find something 
uh, in there that's useful to reflect on as you look ahead and prepare to enter into some social situations this Christmas season. Uh, And then in the Geek Week segment... It's been a little longer than usual since the last podcast was recorded, since I did it early in advance of taking time off for Thanksgiving and whatnot, but uh, uh, I saw A Christmas Story Christmas, which normally, that's that just barely qualifies as, as geek uh, entertainment, and arguably it's not, <laughs> but it does, I'll explain why I think it just barely qualifies. Uh, and why I want to talk about it um, when when I get to that. I read Justice League numbers 18 through 26 of the Rebirth era, and then in video games, a number of things to talk about. I More of the Elix 2 post-game, more about Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous. Uh, I bought a game called What the Dub that ended up being a fun family game with a little bit of geek appeal in it as well, surprisingly. Uh, good, but a good party game and really cheap, good for the holiday season, I think. Uh, Monster Hunter World Iceborne, back into that. Uh, a brief PSA about some PlayStation Store digital game sales, also the, one of them being on uh, on Xbox as well. And uh, let's see here. Oh, and a big announcement, at least in Peter Franson's world, Monster Hunter Rise coming to Xbox and PlayStation in January. So I have some thoughts to share on that as well. And as always, more to, more assorted topics based on your questions, comments, and feedback. You can check out the timestamps for more details. Here we go. At last, the power of the dragon amulet is mine. It overwhelms your feeble defenses. You will now agree with all of my opinions and everything, everything I say, even if it sounds stupid and wrong. <laughs> The series premiere for Willow on Disney Plus, episodes one and two. Uh, the synopsis. Oh, I forgot to copy and paste the synopsis from IMDb. Basically, a bunch of years, decades have passed since the events of the first movie, and Alora Dannon, the prophesied kind of savior of the realm, has been kept uh, hidden and actually her own identity kept from herself, uh, because there, because Willow shortly after the events of the first of the movie, uh, evidently had a dream of a prophecy of a new rising evil that was going to try and kill her again or something like that. And so best to keep her hidden. And so, uh, this story is about basically the, the children of Mad Mardigan and, um, the, the Sorsha, uh, and, and and Alora Dannon, as uh, she is revealed, uh, I won't spoil like you know who she is, who she turns out to be, but it's basically that generation and uh, and and them kind of like needing eventually to connect with Willow, which took a little longer than I thought it should have in the first episode, um, to get Alora Dannon ready for this rising threat, which is really kind of undefined, although there is kind of like some monster attacks and stuff like that. So anyway, that's it's really focused on this younger generation and Alora Dannon. And uh, let me just talk a little bit about the general vibe of this thing, the script, the pacing, the tone in general. This is probably where I'll spend the, the bulk of my uh, uh, talking. But um, the first episode, I was like, where's Willow? Where's Willow? <sighs> We don't see him until almost the very end of the episode. Uh, I mean, not literally. We see him in brief, like, flashback-type stuff. But I'm like, where is Willow? The show is named after him. 
where's Willow? <laughs> uh, instead, you know, when you start that, when you watch Willow, it's about saving the realm. It's about this big, bad evil that can only be stopped by one person. You get a sense of the threat because people are dying. People are threatened. There's a village that's attacked. You know, right from the beginning, there's this sense of threat. Um, and it all centers on this one particular person that needs to be preserved so that the whole realm can be saved. And a lot of this first episode is not about saving the realm, and it's more about exploring coming-of-age quote-unquote romances. I say quote-unquote because it's very shallow. It's very kind of on that CW shallow level of uh, of romance that is really just about, you know, like... Uh, I don't know, very surfacey sexual kind of stuff uh, or sexually driven type stuff. I mean, not literally characters having sex, but I think you hopefully get what I'm driving at there. Um, it's uh, it's not about people so much as just these really strong kind of surfacey feelings um, that tend to be common among uh, teenagers. <laughs> you know. So anyway, there's also anachronistic dialogue and humor sensibilities that would fit perfectly in a Marvel movie. Um, but don't match the style of humor even in the original movie. Now, now there were things about the original movie that I'm like, even as a kid, I didn't like the brownies. Um, I, I just found them kind of like, you know, I just tolerated them. I didn't actually find them funny or endearing or cute, you know. Um, and uh, but, but, I mean, there was humor in the original movie. And so I'm not expecting this to be without humor. But this style of humor is very different in this show. And it's much more like what we've come to expect from Disney's handling of Marvel and Star Wars uh, in their streaming shows and stuff, with Andor probably being the exception, um, and maybe some of uh, Mandalorian. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, these, uh, it's these side remarks. The humor is these side remarks of characters that in those moments are emotionally disconnecting them from the current threat or tension, making some kind of sarcastic remark or whatever, which mostly serves to disconnect me from any sense of threat or tension. It's a style of humor that steps outside of the genre and makes fun of it a bit, telling me as an audience member that, you know, if you think about it, this is kind of ridiculous, you know. But instead... I want them to flesh out the world and the rationality of it and its characters so that I have more reason to invest in it, to take the threats seriously and what the characters are feeling, to take those things seriously, to, to imagine it on some level as real or at least relatable to me in some way. Instead, they disconnect me from the experience so much that I have no invested desire to continue it. Uh, the focus is also largely shifted away from Willow to, as I said, descendants or grown-up versions of the supporting characters of the movie. The center of the movie was Willow. Uh, it was named after him. He was the, It was an ensemble cast, sure, but the center of it, it was all rotating around Willow and his journey, both, uh, both literally and figura figuratively. He's traveling across the land, and he's also going through some character development himself, coming into his own, um, his development from this insecure, underestimated uh, person to this to, and aspiring sorcerer, sorcerer to becoming ultimately this brave hero who, uh, you know, steps into the moment even though he's woefully outmatched. Uh, the dramatic focus here, I feel like, is scattered, it's unfocused, and interrupted by joking. 
Um, I really would have preferred a continued focus on Willow. And I realize that's asking a lot from my expectations of, you know, Disney or the CW or whatever. They're not going to focus on those older generations. I didn't even think, I mean, Willow... When, when that movie was made, uh, Warwick Davis, who played Willow, was very young. I think he was still in his teens, but he was being depicted as a family man, uh, an established family man with a wife and two kids. And um, I, I think I feel like, you know, it it's, wouldn't be too much to ask to have that. OK, let's well, let's have find that a 20 something who's already started a family, you know, and, and, and but instead, no, it's, it's not about that that stage of life. Or what in age or in terms of like what what's true of that stage of life it's not about a family man it's a, you know it's about these young teen 20 somethings uh with their romantic inclinations and feelings and stuff it, it it feels largely above and beyond those elements created by this list of mandates and boxes to check that are common to so many disney plus uh marvel and star wars wars shows already um there's a focus that's prioritizing young and attractive protagonists uh, to the point where like, <laughs> it's like, it's taken me, it's it's not even being true to what characters are saying. There's a moment where Sorsha says to her son, "Where? why do you look like you've been rolling around in the grass? I'm like, what? There's not a blade of grass on him. I mean, maybe he just rolled off of a runway at a fashion show, but he does not look at all like he was rolling around in the grass. What, you know? So it's it's just that that type of design, production design, that is prioritizing things that are ultimately not about really engaging you in the world. There's some other value that uh, that they're that they're holding to uh, that that takes precedence over really telling the story in an innovative, engaging way. It's anachronistic and it's self-mocking humor. Again, this is, you know, I'm, I'm just listing some things that are common to lots of uh, Disney Plus shows. And I think there's some overlap with CW, you know, type content as well. Anachronistic, self-mocking humor that keeps tension and stakes from truly being felt. Shallow, as I said, quote-unquote, romantic relationships, including in the first episode, briefly explore, exploring a gay relationship. Uh, that that even these elements take place of character development. Um, whether it's a, a heterosexual or homosexual relationship, that's kind of beside the point. Uh, the point is that this type of storytelling that's common to Disney and the CW has relationships, romantic quote-unquote relationships, taking the place of character development or being kind of the, 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 the core of the character development, um, serving as primary character arcs. Uh, reinforcing, I think, when they do that, this broken thinking of today that we are identified, defined, and fulfilled by some combination of our gender, sexuality, and or romantic relationships. Um, also, it's very straightforward and and has a storytelling style that I find merely functional that really doesn't lack... Uh, it really lacks style and, and a sense of innovation, you know. Um, the performances... Uh, are were just uninteresting to me they they lacked the subtext i really like to see in my storytelling or really what seemed like you know the freedom to tell the story purely with acting and without dialogue just like some extended moments of silence where just through performances i can get a sense of how characters are feeling instead of them just kind of blabbing about what they're feeling or you know whatever uh it's a lot of telling and not showing i really want them to engage me by showing me 
uh, in the cinematic style, in the actress performances, all that kind of stuff, engage me on that level instead of just kind of like talking all the time and and, uh, doing it all through that. In short, uh, I feel like it's Disney doing this very safe, cookie-cutter thing they've been doing by default for years now, especially in their streaming shows. And it feels totally wrong for Willow and makes me wonder, who in the world is this show for? Um, you know, Willow is not Star Wars. It's not this super known quantity among the younger younger generation of high schoolers and 20-somethings of today. Uh, is it? I mean, I, I don't think it is. I don't think near as many parents have faithfully passed on a love of Willow like they have a love of Star Wars and, and prioritize making sure that their kids saw Willow. Certainly some of us did. But I, I don't feel like it's that. It's not in that that category. Um, and so it's best known, I think, I could be wrong. Somebody can show me some statistics if you can find them somewhere. But I think it's best known by far among those who watched it when they were younger. And by newer audiences, it's, it's probably an unknown thing. Like, oh this, oh, this is based on a movie? Oh, maybe I should watch that movie first. I mean, I don't know. Uh, but th- this show doesn't seem made for the people that watched it when they were younger who would now be in the range of their 30s through 50s and older. Um, it doesn't seem made for that crowd at all. It, it does not seem like a continuation of the movie, but instead some new thing that's that's like in a very forced way wearing a few tattered pieces of the original movie as costume bits and props. Um, weird. Very weird. Uh, I mean, like, within the first... 10 minutes of the first episode, I I laughed out loud because I was like, they cannot help themselves. Dizzy just cannot help themselves. (laughs) They are locked into this certain mode that just seems to lack innovation and creativity as true values in favor of a safe churn out of things they think will make money. And that's really what this feels like to me. Um, I'm sure that there were a lot of creative people involved in this. I'm not saying that the, the director, the writer, the actors were not bringing their all and really trying to be creative. What I'm saying is, what it really seems like to me is they're doing all those things within the constraints of some values that are above them uh, on the producer level, on the money suits level, on some kind of mandate. I don't know what kind of level, but there seems to be these constraints like, okay, yeah, absolutely go nuts and be creative. And we've heard over the years how constrained um, directors of Marvel movies were. Uh, and you can see that because they so many of them feel and look the same, you know, out of a, out of a desire, I think, at the time to make them all feel like they are work in the same world and kind of work together. And so, you know, I can understand going with that and having some mandates and, and having, you know, striving for them to feel the same. I don't think that's necessary, but I can understand them deciding to take that approach and like, OK, sure, give that a shot and see how it works, because it does have some benefits. But there's no reason to do that with Willow. Willow isn't part of the MCU. It's not part of Star Wars or some larger universe. Uh, They would have the freedom here. So this seems like something else, some other constraints. Um, And of course, I think that there's some uh, Christian folks and, uh, you know, that are more tuned into politics and social agendas and stuff like that, that are maybe really going to be tuned in and reacting, especially to the LGBTQ, you know, elements in this. But I'm not even really primarily thinking about that. That's just one box that is being checked here of many that that make it feel like this cookie cutter thing. Yeah. yeah, what uh, what an interesting place that, that Disney is in. It's going to be interesting to see 
if this works for them ultimately, I, I don't know what their numbers are. If people are not getting the subscription service as often, if they're losing audience members, I don't know. I don't know if this is working for them or not. It's, I mean, certainly not working for Peter Franson. Okay, let me move on. Just talk about a few other elements uh, briefly. As far as the cast and the performances go, you know, um, I think that Warwick Davis, who plays Willow, may not be a strong enough actor to really be the true center of this. Um, I wish that weren't the case. I've seen him in, you know, I've seen him in, they they did a mockumentary series that was supposedly like about his life and stuff like that as an actor. I think it was on HBO and I I watched maybe a full season of that and I found it engaging and interesting. And I thought he worked in, uh, you know, in, in the original Willow movie. Um, it, it, uh, his performance wasn't really quite connecting with me here. Um, I, I think he's probably capable though. My guess is that they were just on too much of a schedule to really give the time, uh, to the scenes that he was in, um, to really get the best performance from him, you know? Uh, but I mean, I still wish even with what felt like some shortcomings there, I still wish he was more central to the series that is named after him, <laughs> Especially since so much of that movie is about investing in him and his journey as a character and his development as a character. I know that, you know, even if uh, they're going to base it on focus on another character, they still have to call it Willow from a marketing standpoint so that people immediately understand this is a continuation of the Willow movie. So they're between a rock and a hard place, you know. Uh, they, they really can't win. But even so, uh, I, I wish that it was really more truly focused on, on Willow and his journey. It just doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. Um, this is not a show that relies on performances. I don't think these actors, you know, they all do a solid job delivering their lines as the characters they are supposed to be. But there's nothing engaging to me about any of the performances here. Um, as far as the visuals go... There's some decent creature makeup and costumes in one of the attack scenes in the first episode. It's like, oh, yeah, these are some dark sword and sorcery style monsters that have this really uh, undead, you know, twisted quality to them that I like. But those scenes are still presented in this brightly lit, even when it's supposed to be nighttime, brightly lit, low contrast visuals throughout and especially during daytime, it's like, man, look for the shadows. See if you can point, show me a shadow somewhere. Everything is so well lit from all directions. It just, it has a clean look that even actually as a result feels a little bit cheap and kind of network TV-like in a way that I can't describe, rather than being cinematic, you know, and having like this uh, artistic vision for visual storytelling. It doesn't seem like that that's really a, a priority here. Um, it's just very standard storytelling, making sure everything's nice and clean and brightly lit so we can see everything and know what's going on. Like, check. All right, we've done that. Let's move on, you know. Um, as far as the music, I don't always co comment on the music um, in my reviews, but... Uh, it feels a little melodramatic at times. Uh, there's also one or two moments where it was giving away moments before they happened. And like, I I'm like, I know exactly what's going to happen in three seconds, two, one. Yes, that is exactly because the music is giving it away <laughs> as it leads up to it. Uh, and then there's also some awkward use of the original theme. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll use that a couple times in, in a maybe in a minor way or a sad way as if to say remember remember this theme remember the old movie that you liked I'm like yes yes I remember <laughs> and this feels very forced uh in the score at this moment so 
And then maybe the weirdest thing wasn't actually taking place during the story, but at the end of both of the first two episodes, where at the very end it transitions to this pop-style music for the credits that, like, does not feel so weird and so out of place. The first uh, credits music that was played at the end of the first episode was probably called Guess Who's Back, because that was kind of a refrain in the chorus. Guess who's back? Guess who's back? And I'm like... And it was supposed to be like, you know, this is, you know, remember, this is the return of these characters. And so it was supposed to be referencing that in some way, that now these characters are back or... And I'm like, really? I, I don't I don't know who's back. I don't really recognize um, this show, this place. I don't recognize any of this. I, I don't know who's back. <laughs> uh, okay, as far as themes, is there anything of moral, philosophical, or spiritual significance going on in the themes of this thing that might trigger some worthwhile thought or conversation? I always like to try to look for those things, ask myself those questions as I'm taking in content. I don't know, guys. Maybe some... There's power within yourself stuff, kind of stuff going on, discovering who you are, coming of age, probably some LGBTQ stuff uh, that'll be explored and touched on more later. It was just briefly touched on the first episode and not in the second that I recall. I don't know. But, But at every turn, regardless of what themes they may or may not be playing with, at every turn, it seems like they don't want me to take this seriously. And and even the potential inclusion of themes doesn't feel heartfelt so much as tropey or required by some executive mandate or controlling mission statement regarding what Disney shows are supposed to be. So I don't think there's anything worth thinking about here, and I can't wait to stop thinking about this show, um, which is really sad because I love fantasy, and there's so little of it without sexy naked people in Stevie in streaming shows. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I really or or taken seriously in four adults. Um there's Wheel of Time and there's uh, I think probably all the the Amazon the Amazon Prime Rings of Power Lord of the Rings show I'll probably get back into that. Um uh, maybe I'll be able to I don't know, I'll think about The Witcher. I, I keep thinking about that, coming back to it briefly. I'm not sure if it's it's going to be for me or not. But there's just not near as much as there is sci-fi or even superhero stuff these days. And so I'm always, I'm always starving for it and wanting more of it and willing to lower the bar to get it. But I, I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. So I don't know what your tastes are in TV shows, but if I were time traveler, I'd go back in time and say, Peter. Skip, man. Um, just just watch Willow again sometime. It's a, it's a good movie, you know. Uh, yeah, just skip this one. This one's rated TV-14 for, I don't know, violence, uh, a gay kiss, TV-14 for the heck of it, because that's what MCU and Star Wars things are rated. I have no idea. I have no idea. But those are all, my, all of my thoughts for now on the season premiere for Willow on Disney+. Plus. Data collection complete. Activating Usenet 1.0. Well, hey guys, Peter Franson here, and I wanted to give you the final tally for our Game Save 22 fundraising event. Um, it's awesome. This year we raised a combined total 
of $2,620 for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. That's the second highest amount we've ever raised for charity period and a new record for our Game Save event fundraising. On top of that, we've also achieved a new all-time record for average funds raised by team members. So it just seems like everybody was in... Uh, bringing their A-game. That number had already skyrocketed last year when we moved from uh, Extra Life to our new Game Save initiative, and now we've broken last year's record too. So amazing job, team members and donors. Thank you all so much. Uh, And as promised, the top fundraiser on the Game Save team will now be celebrated in song. Uh, Let's see. I have this idea. I had this melody in my head before I started recording. Um... Gabriel Stinson for the win, son. You're the game save MVP. MVP, your fundraising was amazing for game save at CGC. Gabriel Stinson, you're what's in, son. How we all wish we could be like you. You achieved it. I always believed it. So excited I might be. So well done, Gabriel. Thank you so much for your awesome work. I also want to extend a special thank you to Aaron Huey, who raised an enormous amount of funds for this event all year long, but channeled most of those funds uh, as donations toward the efforts of other team members and the team as a whole. So you rock, Aaron. Thank you again so much. And again, thank you to everybody on the team, everybody who donated. What a fantastic year of fundraising, and I can't wait to do it again in uh, 2023. So I hope you guys will join us for that. Thanks. Bye-bye. And this week over at youtube.com slash Christian Geek Central, I posted the video, How Purpose Changes Our Speech. That's the uh, Colossians uh, Bible study from last episode of the podcast. I published uh, Four Against Darkness Part 5, in which I take on the Goblin Poisoners. I put up my review for the premiere of Willow. Um, on Thursday, I put up a video that's part of the Summer Insanity 24-hour live stream that I did. And in this segment, I play Saints Row the Third with my son Titus, uh, which was fun. And uh, and then also my troll review is up now. Reminder that uh, upcoming dates for live events are now always posted below all YouTube videos. Of course, we did just have the live stream this week. The next uh, live event is going to be in January, and so I do make a note of that. I don't have a date for it yet, but that is the first place probably that that date will appear. And so you can check any recent video on the YouTube channel to get the latest upcoming dates uh, on the calendar for live events or time-sensitive things that you might want to be tuned into. While you're there, if you want to like, share, subscribe, and click that bell or do other stuff to help spread the content around, uh, I'd be really grateful for that. Christian Geekly News highlights from our Twitter feed at Christian underscore geek include... Uh, really, just Lorehaven tweeted out three new books that they've added to their uh, to their records, which uh, usually is an indication that they're also recently published. So, Lorehaven's a great resource if you want to keep track of books written like novels in geek genres like sci-fi, fantasy, and I think even horror at times they're tracking that too. But from any publisher, it's not just limited to to one publisher. So they're a great resource to be aware of what's going on. Uh, that's being written from a Christian perspective, not necessarily for a Christian audience, but from by a Christian author from a Christian perspective. So anyway, three new books they tweeted about this week. Uh, in their first tweet, 
They wrote, 17-year-old Nora meets a handsome guy with snowflakes in his hair who says he'll train her to become the next Winter Guardian. New in the Lorehaven Library, Frost, Winter's Lonely Guardian, from author E.E. E. Rawls. So potentially uh, a book to scratch a little holiday vibe. Uh, I don't know if in this fantasy world they specifically celebrate Christmas, but, uh, you know, wintry, I don't know, <laughs> snowflakes in your hair. In uh, their next one... Prince Ar- Prince Arnian, dang it. <laughs> Prince Arnian must conceal his identity from the people he's been sent to save, including a young woman he's inexplicably drawn to. New in the Lorehaven Library, Beauty from Ashes, from author Pamela Hart. And then finally they tweeted out, In a world filled with steam and clockwork, one not-so-normal girl searches for what it means to be truly loved by her family and friends. New in the Lorehaven Library, The Truth Beyond the Lies, from author Kathleen Bird. So anyway, for more information about those books, for links to those things, and to stay up to date on the notable news and events from the wider world of Christian geekery, be sure to follow Christian Geek Central on Twitter, at Christian underscore geek. Over at patreon.com slash Productions this week, uh, I posted a, uh, a notice requesting feedback on when is good to have our annual Christmas hangout for all patrons. Normally, once a month, I do a, a live patron hangout with a audio chat through Discord for patrons at the $5 tier and higher. But the tradition has been for a while now that in December, I open up that monthly hangout to all patrons. Uh, and so it's time again for that all patron Discord Chris, uh, Christmas Discord hangout at the $1 tier or higher. Even if you are not a patron right now, but you jump on right now, you can get access to this, uh, to this hangout. Um, but you're invited to follow the link in this post that I just put up to let me know when is good for you among the available dates and times for our December Audio Discord Hangout. I am making even more times available as options to choose from. Um, Times that are normally not available to me, but I want to stretch myself a little bit just this once to, uh, in hopes of getting as many... uh, as possible involved in, to the to the hangout. So uh, you can check out that post. It just says all patrons when is good for Christmas hangout. And uh, be sure to select your time zone when you f- uh, follow the link so that the site can do the time zone math for you and you don't got to worry about that. And then I'm going to check the results and announce the hangout day this coming Monday, December 5th. Uh, so looking forward to hanging out with you guys. Uh, as a reminder, also, you can get every audio drama from Spirit Blade for Productions for just $10. That's a huge discount uh, that you can use to give the gift of genre-bending sci-fi and fantasy to a friend or family member this Christmas. You just jump on that $10 tier for one month at patreon.com slash Productions, and you get instant access to the entire Spirit Blade Productions library, tons of exclusive behind-the-scenes special features. That's over an $80 value for almost 90% off. Um, actually with the addition of, uh, of, uh, from beyond, that's well over an $80 value for even more than 90% off. So huge, huge value there. And feel free to download anything you have access to at that $10 tier and give a copy to a friend or family member for Christmas. Yes, this is the owner of all applicable copyrights involved telling you that you're more than welcome, guilt-free to copy and give away what you download from the $10 tier as Christmas gifts. You know, maybe just until the end of the year, though, pretty please. <laughs> but I mean, I you know, in all the years that I've run Christmas sales, I, I've I've never run a deal as good as this one, um, which really is available all year long. I just make a point of reminding you about it right now because I know budgets are tight 
for uh, many folks right now. And so I am happy to help you save some money while uh, still allowing you to give gifts that geeks will love. Or maybe you just want to gift something, you know, for yourself. So uh, I hope that you will consider uh, taking advantage of that for your own benefit if it suits you and your needs in gift giving giving this Christmas. And of course, also, it's a great support to, uh, to me and the work that I'm doing. And I do want to thank again all the Spirit Blade insiders who make it possible for me to continue in this work. You guys, I so appreciate you so much. Um, anyway, for more info, again, patreon.com slash Productions. And now for a segment that doesn't suck. Not many more times we're going to have this segment. It's going to be finishing up real soon here. Um, welcome to the weekly word segment of the podcast, which began in episode 687. And you can go back there and listen for an intro and explanation of the intent for this segment. Each time I've been reporting on my ongoing experience of reading through the Bible in a year. We started last January. And uh, we are going to be wrapping it up at the end of this month. Actually, I will. there will be you know a couple episodes of the podcast that I'm producing before I take my break. And so there'll be two, maybe as many as three episodes. I can't remember how it's going to work out where I, where this segment is not in it. And then I'll do a big one to wrap it up when I come back <laughs> uh, in early January. But yeah, I report on my ongoing experience of reading through the Bible in a year. And you've been invited to do that with me for any part of the endeavor, including just at the end here, where we are really covering a lot of ground really fast in the New Testament. A lot of these books are shorter, much more easily digestible. And so maybe you just want to, for the month of December, uh, kind of like build a a habit into your life that you haven't uh, had before in reading scripture and covering some of these New Testament books from beginning to end that are, like I said, very, many of them bite-sized, very digestible um, and a lot of just great truth content to to meditate on, whether it's the Christmas season or any time of year. And honestly, I think that the book of Revelation has become uh, all the more meaningful to me, especially the late chapters in Revelation at Christmas time. Um, and maybe I'll talk about that at some point when we when we get to those verses or when I come back in January. Anyway, um, so yeah, as geeks, we are passionate about the things that we love, but we often lack passion and discipline for those things that are most important. So the mission verse for me, as I've tried to add this spiritual discipline to my life, has been 1 Timothy 4.8, which in the ESV says, While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Uh, this week I read f- all of, uh, let's see, 1 Thessalonians 5. Then all of 2 Thessalonians, all of 1 Timothy, all of 2 Timothy, all of Titus, and all of Philemon. And uh, the the jump out, the standout passages for me um, would be Philippians 3, verses uh, 3, 18 through 20. I mean, this this kind of, I think, um, maybe stood out to me a little bit more this time. It says, for many of whom I have often told you now... um, Oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. These are the verses from... That's from that's from last week. I forgot to just take that out. Uh, no wonder I was like, this is confusing. I don't actually remember reading that this week. <laughs> okay, First Timothy, uh, chapter three, verses one through thirteen, um, is the qualifications for elders and deacons, and I, I don't really have uh, info to share about this now. But there is um, a, a role at my church that I'm considering. Uh, entering into that this passage has some relevance to, I mean, elders and deacons, and then the, also later on overseers and bishops in Titus 1, 5 through 9, you know, really, um, it is a it is a type of leadership 
position um, at the church. I won't go into more detail than that. Uh, but anytime I think that we're uh, looking at serving in a way that involves leading others in any way, um, even when it has nothing to do with being an elder or deacon or bishop or whatever your church might call various leadership positions, um, I think that passages like these can be really valuable for us. They, they've they been relevant to me <clears throat> before now, just as someone who's making content online and um, not in a, not leading in any sense like you do in the local church, because that's like with, you know, you're in the trenches in person with people. There's just no comparing with anything you might do online. Um, but I mean, there's still some principles that I think carry over that I, uh, I want to be true of me and I want to be pursuing in my life if I'm going to presume to make content that is meant to help you guys and be a, a source of equipping and guiding in some way to you guys spiritually. So, uh, so these verses have been relevant to me for a, a long time, um, but I was kind of looking at them with uh, fresh eyes again. And uh, honestly, I think that they are relevant to all Christians because we are all going to find ourselves, if we are engaging in the local church, uh, eventually we will find ourselves in positions of mentoring in some sense, whether you're helping out in a children's Sunday school class or just kind of having a conversation with somebody that's that's uh, younger in the faith than you are. Uh, these qualities are important to be developing in us um, as we uh, as we find ourselves in situations where we are kind of leading in a formal or informal way other believers. So that's uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. I'm not going to read it now. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 through 5, says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And I don't want to, I don't want to be reckless and over-apply this to any and all kinds of situations that it shouldn't be applied to, but this is, I think, a valuable verse for us as geeks, um, as we are engaging with different forms of entertainment that are not made by Christians, that are not made to glorify God, uh, but that we can um, appropriate them for a holy purpose whether that's allowing elements of it to cause us to reflect on issues or pray for certain people who maybe have adopted a broken worldview that the entertainment we're taking in reflects, um, or maybe it's just a source of refreshment. We are to be in rhythms of rest in our life. And so the point is, I think this is a good go-to verse uh, when, when you know, we might look at something and, or, or someone else might look at us looking at something and be like, how is that? honoring to God, you know, um, and you could also, you know, everything created by God is good. Well, okay. Was this video game created by God? Well, not directly, but I don't think this verse is intended to be limited to things that are created by God directly. Um, because God created, or maybe he didn't create creativity. I was, uh, is part of his own nature. And it's something that he imparted to us as reflections of him. But it is ultimately sourced in him. So just the very act of being creative, having the ability to do that. And of course, all the physical materials that are required to bring about a video game, even if, even if it's a digital download. You know, there's all kinds of things that depend on God that are good in the, the entertainment that we take in. And, uh, and so I think that this verse is worthy of consideration 
It says, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy. In other words, holy meaning set apart for the purposes of God. It is made set apart for the purposes of God by the word of God, if we're processing it, if we're taking in in the word of God and in prayer, you know. So um, again, I'm not saying that this verse can recklessly be applied and make everything acceptable for us to engage in as geeks. But I think that it's helpful to me and to all of us as we uh, choose what we're going to enter into and say, okay, can this be um, accepted instead of rejected if I receive it with thanksgiving for the purpose that it has that ultimately honors and serves God in my life? Is it made holy by some aspect of the word that I can be reflecting on as I interact with this thing? Is it made holy by a prayerful attitude that I'm having as I choose to to engage with it? So I think that's a valuable verse for me, a valuable verse for all of us as geeks. Again, that's 1 Timothy 4, uh, 4 and 5, so two verses. 2 Timothy 1, 7, this is a good one for me. Probably for a lot of geeks too, but definitely for me. Second Timothy one seven says, "For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self control." I, I tend toward anxious thinking and uh, assuming the worst will happen. <laughs> but anytime I'm having anxious thoughts and fears, this verse is a reminder. You know, that's not from God. That's something else going on. Whether that's an attack of the enemy or just something in your own broken tendencies. That's not the spirit of God that's working in you because God didn't give us a spirit of fear. Uh, but the signposts of the spirit that God has given us uh, are power and love and self-control. Um, yeah, there's so much there to meditate on. Power, love, and self-control. Do we want to test our attitude, test what's going on in our motives and how we're interacting and how we're thinking about various situations? Well... Where's love involved in that? Who specifically are we loving? And are we in control of ourselves or are we following just our natural inclinations? Um, there's, yeah, a lot there. Second Timothy 1.7. And then finally, I already mentioned it earlier, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, qualifications for overseers and bishops, which again, I find uh, myself uh, reflecting on in a fresh way as I kind of consider uh, possibly uh, entering into a, a different role Um a volunteer. It's a volunteer position. It's not a staff position. I'm not quitting what I'm doing <laughs> uh, with Spirit of Light Productions and Christian Geek Central, and I don't think it would have any noticeable impact on uh, on my work and what I'm putting out there. So uh, I definitely have more that I'm sharing in journal entries with patrons in the month of December when those journal entries go up and sometime in the first half of, of uh, this month. And probably publicly, you know, and on the podcast and stuff, I'll, I'll have something to share at some point in January. But anyway, uh, but yeah, that's all I have to report in terms of verses that I, you know, that stood out to me in the readings this week. In the meantime, I'm going to try and stick with it <laughs> as I uh, continue racing to the end of this journey. As we're taught in 1 Timothy 4, 8, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Well, thank you all for joining me on this historic day. The serum I've created will give anyone who drinks it the power to objectively know the difference between something that is cool and something that is lame and is completely safe. Allow me to demonstrate. (sighs) 
the new movie on Netflix. The synopsis on IMDb reads, Deep in the Dovre Mountain, something gigantic wakes up after a thousand years in captivity. The creature destroys everything in its path and quickly approaches Oslo. All right, so what is this animal, basically? Uh, I got one impression from the trailer, but I think it turned out... Well, I know it turned out to be something different than what I was expecting. The synopsis and trailer gave me the impression this would be a movie about people running from a giant scary, destructive monster. But by the halfway point, it was clear to me that the troll, uh, this movie Troll, is following a formula that's more like a Godzilla movie, in which people are the real monsters, and the destructive giant is ultimately innocent and misunderstood. Nora Tiedemann is a paleontologist who was raised by a disgraced folklore professor who believed the myths of trolls are real. And so she has to reconnect with her estranged father, who taught and believed these things and was kind of outcast from society, and accept as she does that, that he may have been right all along. So um, there's uh, some nice uh, family drama elements at play that I did appreciate. And the main characters are, are often in a chase either toward or away from the giant troll, trying to survive against what feels like a massive force of nature. And in this sense, it has the sort of more adventurous feel than really like a scary thriller type feel. This adventurous feel that a number of disaster movies have. It also employs humorous beats and comic relief characters that are common in disaster movies. And so I really feel like it fits in that category far more than a monster movie or even necessarily the same mold that a lot of giant monster movies like King Kong, Godzilla, that sort of thing fall into. It really doesn't end up feeling scary to me at all, but more adventurous and suspenseful here and there. And that's fine and fitting, I think, for what it's going for. It's just not the type of movie that I generally enjoy and found that this one really didn't change my opinion about that mold of story. Still, it had some touching emotional beats that I did connect with, having to do, again, with the reconciliation between father and daughter, and a few other somber and emotional beats that lent substance and weight to what could have been, I think, uh, just a purely trivial adventure story. So I did appreciate those elements. As far as the cast goes, although nearly the entire movie is in Norwegian with subtitles, I thought the performances uh, came through well in the inflections, the, the facial expressions, the visual acting going on. I can't say, of course, how it might play to its native audience, uh, but the performance styles all felt grounded and dramatic when they when that those kinds of moments were called for, and then also light and comedic when uh, needed for those moments as well. So I really have no complaints, and I definitely recommend the original audio with English subtitles over the English dub. I heard just a little bit of the English dub. For some reason, my Netflix account was defaulted to giving me that. And I was like, oh, no. And and again, I heard why I don't like dubs. They usually are using voice actors that over-inflect, and it sounds a little bit like, uh, you know, the acting in an animated movie. And I'm just like, this is, this is not working for me. So I really would recommend uh, hearing the inflections of the original Norwegian, you know, even if uh, you, you don't speak Norwegian. Um, let's see here. As far as stunts and visuals go, uh, visuals, I would say, are really on par with a big American Hollywood release. And uh, I believe this is a Netflix-produced, Netflix-funded movie. And I wonder if that's kind of like they've gotten enough money now that they've, they've figured out that this is a way that they can 
make the most out of their money to really pump a lot of that maybe into post-production visual effects or just the cinematography and stuff like that, but you don't need to pay a bunch of big Hollywood stars a bunch of big Hollywood bucks to make it happen. But still, you can get some great acting and stuff. So I, I'm just I'm a little curious on them on a meta level about uh, you know what they're what they're doing here, how much this thing cost. But anyway, it's you know apart from the fact that it was you know Norwegian, it looked like it felt like a big Hollywood release visually speaking. The CG troll still looks like CG to my cursed eyes, which pick out CG unfortunately all too well. But it's I think really good CG, and there are also some cool uses of slow motion in some of the action beats uh, that lend spectacle and, and scale to the story in, in a way that I found satisfying. But it's also not a constant special effects bonanza. You shouldn't go in with that expectation. I personally wish they would have kept the monster uh, more obscured um, and kind of like a force of nature. Like he really started out in the movie instead of in the back half really giving us frequent clear looks at him uh, but I'm always an advocate for hiding the monster because I think the more you can do that uh, the more the imagination goes to work and the more scary they are but again they're not going for scary back half they really want you to relate to the monster so it makes sense that they're showing him a lot you know so I ultimately I can't I can't fault them for going in that direction given what type of movie they were trying to make here uh, as far as themes is there anything of moral philosophical or spiritual significance going on in the themes of this thing that might trigger some worthwhile thought or conversations um the trolls are said to have gone extinct because of the christianization of norway that phrase is used multiple times the christianization of norway and this is spoken of with disgust by the folklore expert of trolls that we are clearly meant to sympathize with and see as the downtrodden outcast who was really right all along we are meant to really i think be sympathetic toward his viewpoint um and uh, his and he speaks with disgust about the christianization of norway uh the troll is also a awakened and angered when his sleeping place is drilled to make a tunnel, uh, to make a modern uh, kind of nicety for civilization in Norway, amidst protesters who want the mountain left alone, particularly, uh, or presumably, you know, people that uh, would be equivalent to those that want to preserve nature and, and natural landmarks and natural places and things like that, you know. So it was that kind of protesting group. And there was also expressions of the idea that nature should be left alone or it's going to fight back. And and there's similar things going on with Godzilla, that Godzilla's origins are, I guess, uh, related to the nuclear bomb and experimentations and the radioactivity of that. I think there's some kind of connection there. But anyway, you know, these a lot of these big monster movies will have that kind of theme where like modern military or technological pro uh, progress that does not treat nature with respect results in some representative of nature coming out and then doing harm although it's no fault of their own they're not malevolent they're just trying to defend themselves and stuff like that you know so uh it, it's got some of that vibe going on the, the norwegian military is also also depicted as um not really evil but overreactionary destructive i mean there's one person in there that's just this mindless like blow them up destroy everything you know um and being you know completely ignorant and stuff like that and, and, and toward this innocent troll you know who's 
definitely portrayed as the victim. Now, I'm not going to attempt to read the mind of the writer. I don't think we should do that. But I, I think it's interesting that these elements synchronize well with a perspective that sees Christianity or modernity as a destroyer of culture and or a destroyer of nature. So uh, a liberal and or secular perspective, but one that still wants to believe in the supernatural, uh, still wants to believe that some things that most people consider not to be real might be real. You know, that the, that the wondrous could really exist. Uh, and, and a viewpoint that still holds to some virtues that are believed in strongly. There is, I, I think, also a noteworthy portrayal of faith. Not religious faith, but faith in the existence, in this case, of trolls or other ideas that one might want to believe are true. Uh, Nora's father tells her that rather than, be, than, than seeing, excuse me, before believing, one must believe before they will be able to see. And a little later, Nora discovers a new dig site that her uh, paleontologist colleagues thought did not exist. They were ready to give up, but she finds it. And in her celebration of the find, as they're kind of, you know, drinking champagne and celebrating after the fact, she tells the others that if you truly believe in something, and then she's cut off by, you know, an event, an advancement of the story. But the implication is clear. Believe first, and then the thing you want to believe in, that you strongly believe in, will be seen or brought about or actualized in some way. Now, depending on the sense, this notion is either true or false. It is false in the sense that the existence of a being such as trolls or God, uh, or the existence of physical objects such as dinosaur bones is brought about by our belief. That's false. Um, belief does not make anything true. However, it is true that there are some realities we cannot experience until after we believe, such as uh, certain blessings, uh, experiences, and life changes that can come about as a result of believing in Jesus and trusting in God's word. I think in the case of finding the paleon, the, you know, finding the, the, the dinosaur bones, it wasn't her belief that they existed that brought it about. I mean, well, in the context of the story, the writer can make whatever, you know, whatever they want happen. But in the real world, when people would say like, oh, I believed strongly enough and then this came about, well, it was really that their their persistence in believing that led them to stick it out long enough to eventually bring about the thing that they wanted to bring about. It's not that literally their belief altered reality and brought something into existence. I mean, there are some people that, that believe that that is the case. That's kind of a, I, I don't know if that you describe that as a new age philosophy or whatever, but uh, but I mean, I, I think it's demonstrably false. And so that's not something that we want to adopt uh, as Christians. But um, uh, let's see here. What else was I going to say here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are some um, realities we cannot experience. The experience of realities sometimes cannot be uh, had until we believe or trust in some prerequisite fashion. But this isn't to say that the Bible teaches belief in God without reason, without having good reason to. In fact, contrary to other religions and philosophies, scripture invites logical reasoning, uh, testing, scrutiny, and examination. Paul says, listen, if Christ was not raised, then our faith is in vain and we should be pitied more than anybody else. And so he's saying, dig into this, examine the, the claims of the resurrection, and, uh, and, and see for yourself, you know, and even us uh, thousands of years later, there is evidence that we can actually research and discover actually exists that's very strong and compelling for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and um, 
And the claims of Christianity, you know, hold up under uh, this kind of scrutiny, unlike uh, the alternatives. But living out the Christian life, experiencing the Christian life in matters, say, of obedience, um, there are times where God does want us to simply trust and obey without first having a full explanation, a full understanding of all the reasons and arguments for why. Uh, I mean, I've learned just that as a parent, too, that sometimes my boys want to know all the reasons why uh, we want them to live a certain way, make certain choices, have a certain perspective, and they're just not old enough to cognitively understand all the things that we understand. Um, and so sometimes we do try to explain as much as we can to them so they can be armed with that knowledge. But there are times in the moment where there's just not time to explain. And like, kiddo, I, I, right now, I just need you to obey. I just need you to trust and do this. And we can talk about it more later or, you know, you'll understand more as you learn about some other things in life. Uh, but there are some times where we're just called to trust and obey. Um, so anyway, all these various ideas, I think, are pretty embedded uh, certainly some of them not intentionally. They are a bit below the surface, but I don't think it takes much to start thinking or talking about them after watching Troll. Now, I have no idea what your tastes are in movies, but if I were a time traveler, I'd go back in time and say, Peter, um, skip this one. You know, it's got some interesting thematic stuff, uh, probably not being made from a perspective, from a worldview that you would agree with. But I mean, it's it's still interesting on a meta level to kind of, you know, uh, tr figure out what's going on there. But as far as the experience, the intended experience itself, you just prefer scary monsters over the innocent Godzillas being attacked by the evil modern military, you know. Um, and yet the concept of trolls as colossal, colossal destructive creatures is one that appeals to you. So for that, go and watch or watch again the movie Troll Hunter instead, uh, which I think can be found pretty frequently and recurringly on various free streaming services, Troll Hunter. Um, and that really is uh, applying some of the same um, Scandinavian folklore and mythology and putting it in a modern context in, in some similar ways, but treating the trolls as scary monsters, you know, and uh, resulting in something that's much more appealing to you as a horror fan. This one's rated TV 14 for fear, language, and violence. And those are all my thoughts for now on Troll. The truth will set you free. Truth is that which corresponds to fact or reality. To assert that truth is not absolute is a self-defeating proposition. Now, lots of things are possible, but our beliefs should reflect the best explanation of the available evidence. I'm no expert, but the information is out there. You'd be amazed what you can learn if you spend some time in search of truth. The truth will set you free. This time, uh, we're taking a short break, actually, from our journey through the book of Ephesians to take a look at the core concept behind Christmas and how it has huge relevance for us, both during this season and all year long. Uh, what theologians call the Incarnation refers to the concept of God becoming fully human, but still being every bit God. So in other words, he didn't change from God into a human. He added full humanity to himself without removing anything of who he is. And the idea raises like all kinds of questions. You know, if everything is held together in Christ, as Colossians 1.17 says, then how did the universe not fall apart while Jesus was uncontrollably pooping his diapers? If Jesus was God throughout his childhood and ministry, how could he 
learn anything or, or have limited knowledge, as is implied by John 8.28 and Mark 13.32. How could God die if he is life itself, uh, as we see in John 14.6? Well, in response to these questions, theologians present the idea that Jesus had two complete natures, so that in his divinity, in his divine nature, he remained all-knowing and all-powerful and undying, and yet in his humanity, he was vulnerable with limited knowledge. Uh, now, if you think theology is boring, stick with me. We're actually almost done with this theology part. Uh, we're, we're heading into territory that likely depends on minds that are capable of higher than like linear four-dimensional thought, which is really what we are limited to. So realize that when we get into this stuff, metaphors are likely all going to fall short when they get picked apart. That said, the two natures concept of Jesus suggests that in some sense, Jesus in his divine nature willingly compartmentalized in some way his divinity without losing it to take on humanity in its fullness with all its limitations. He was completely dependent on God the Father for both normal day-to-day -day life and for his miraculous deeds, which were only possible in his human nature because he submitted and united his will with the Father, which I think we see in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Okay, theology part done, all that to say, it's vitally important for us to realize that Jesus lived a painful, crappy life, and being God did not somehow make it all easy for him. As we saw in our look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.15 in the ESV says, We do not have a high priest, you know, in other words, someone who intercedes between, uh, for us um, as a mediator between us and God. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, talking about Jesus now, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's interesting to think about. Often when we are tempted, the duress of fighting our inclinations becomes too uncomfortable or t takes too much effort. So we just give in and experience the fleeting pleasure or relief that giving in provides us. You know, whether that's telling off somebody, you know, or giving in to some kind of sexual sin or whatever the thing is that gives us pleasure or some kind of relief and satisfaction. You know, we can't stand fighting our inclinations and so we give in and we get that sense of pleasure or relief. Jesus fought temptation and never allowed himself that fleeting pleasure or that relief of giving in. Um, so he experienced temptation to a, uh, I, would, I would wager, a more extended and uh, uncomfortable degree than we do. Jesus also knew better than we do what it's like to be rejected by people and considered worthless. Chances are, if you're a geek... Uh, you've experienced some of that in your life to some degree or another. Um, and that kind of rejection, that kind of dismissiveness, that kind of judgment from others and being considered worthless, it hurt him, I believe, more than it hurts us because he loved people so much more deeply than you and I do, making the sting of their rejection far worse. And I come to that conclusion just based on my reactions to Matthew twenty three seventeen, and Luke nineteen, forty one through forty four, Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, and just approaching the city, he thought about all the people that were there, and how they had turned away from God, and it just caused him to weep. Um, 
That's that's love. That's I am so calloused that I don't. That's not me. I don't. I don't have that. But Jesus loved so deeply. That's 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 where he was. Um, anyway, Jesus uh, also was was prophetically described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Isaiah fifty three three says that, and he was known to pray not just with like this kind of urgency or passion, but like crying out loudly amidst tears. And we see that in Hebrews 5, 7. When's the last time you and I cried out, literally cried out loudly, shouting with tears running down our face? That's what Jesus was known to do. Um, so he knows what it's like to be in the trenches and to just have a crappy life and to feel deeply and to be hurt deeply. We can think of God as a removed clockmaker who set things in motion and then walked away. A lot of people do, but that's not the truth. For whatever reason, uh, and I mean, I could give some reasons, but even as I look at those, I'm like, yeah, but it, at the end of the day, why? Why? I have to say, I, I don't know. So for whatever reason, he created us to be significant. And he sealed that significance by first making us a reflection of him on some level. And then making himself to be like us. I, th yeah, I don't get it. Um, I, I haven't mentioned his death for us yet, because most of us will probably not have to die because of our obedience to God. But we can relate to being judged and rejected by others. And it's the, it's the common ground Jesus shares with us that I want to emphasize right now as we all head into Christmas and New Year's Eve. Um... This is possibly the most social time of year for us geeks. <laughs> we'll be willingly or unwillingly crammed in rooms with people we aren't used to spending lots of time with. Maybe that's coworkers at some kind of office party. Maybe that's uh, friends, people at church. Maybe that's family that we're not used to spending a lot of time with, you know. And some of those people, friends, family, whoever, will see the world very differently than we do. And that may passively or even openly express itself in a way that, that feels judgmental or dismissive, or maybe really is judgmental or dismissive. Either way, there's a good chance we're going to feel that. Um, we need to know that in those times, Jesus uh, did not go into like a Spock mode and stop feeling. He, he maintained composure, but I don't think he stopped feeling. He was gracious in the moment. Um, religious leaders being a possible exception at times, although, I, you know, just by not jolting them with lightning bolts, he was, he was being pretty gracious with them. But, but um, aside from the religious leaders, you just see just the ridiculous patience that he had. And I don't mean ridiculous in a judgmental way. Obviously, he was much, <laughs> he was perfect. And I wish that I could have the ridiculous grace that he did. But it just, you know, by our standards, was just like, holy crap, how are you so patient with people? How in the world are you so stinking patient with people? But he was so gracious in the moment, meeting people where they were at. Even though they should have been in a different place and a better place, he met them where they were at. And then later, he would take time to be by himself and he would cry with God about what he was experiencing, what he was mourning. You know, in that last part, going to God and crying about it might sound weak or immature in our modern cultural context. So maybe that's an indicator that actually we should change our definition of spiritual maturity. 
You know, being real with God. I mean, if we read our Psalms and look at the life of Jesus, we see we see godly, spiritually mature models of faith being real and bringing their tears to God. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to bring him our tears. And he also wants us to control our emotions so we can be composed and meet people where they are at. It's about having the right emotions at the right time. Um, if you're looking for a meaningful spiritual activity as you head into this season, I want to recommend sitting down and quietly reading the entire book of Philippians in one go. Don't worry, it's a short one. I think it took me, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, something like that. Um, as, as we're going through the, the book of Ephesians right now, in order to cast vision for the kind of community Christian Geek Central can be, Philippians, I think, is a great companion book to that, as Paul uh, models, as he does in, in uh, many of his writings, long-distance, text-based relationships for us, certainly very relevant to our lives today, in addition to primarily presenting vision for our in-person relationships. Um, and, I mean, there's just fantastic stuff in that. I, I didn't even put in my notes here, but, like, if you read, not only is there stuff about our, our social interactions with others, there's stuff about anxiety, you know, in the in the back part of that book, and our thought life, and, you know, how our minds, what we're, what we're allowing our minds to focus on, and, uh, you know, what we should be focusing on as we're dealing with anxiety. I mean, there's great, great stuff, uh, especially for the Christmas season, if, if, if uh, the social situations bring any level of anxiety or frustration or whatever. Um, it's just a great book for this time of year. Um, anyway, in a key passage of Philippians, Paul brings out both the common ground Jesus shares with us because of his incarnation and the way we ought to share common ground with him as we carry out our relationships, whether those relationships are online or in person, whether with family or with friends. Now, granted, Paul is teaching in the context of our relationships with other Christians, but most, if not all, of these principles apply to relationships with non-believers as well. Uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 8 in the ESV says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did you notice how real this gets? How internally transformative the intention is? The language here isn't about modifying our behavior so we can all play nicely together. Um, that actually doesn't work. Because try as we might, our selfishness, our defensiveness, our insecurity, it can all only be hidden or contained through willpower for so long. 
Um, and that it is so easy to approach the Christian life as behavior modification, as this intellectual thing where we look at the Bible and we say, oh, yes, uh, this is a good way to live, and this is how I, you know, this is how I should, you know, think about things and do things, da-da-da-da-da, and then we tell ourselves that we're thinking that way and doing those things, da-da-da, but it's, it's ultimately just by willpower, and it's not really in our heart of hearts changing our perspective and how we really genuinely look at things and think about things and feel about things. The Holy Spirit through Paul is calling us to change the way we think and feel about others. You know, as geeks, we love to, we love to nitpick. We love to get passionate about our differing views, but the bulk of our interactions should actually be aiming for unity. I'm not saying that we can't do those things ever, but the bulk of our interactions should be aiming for unity. We're called to have the same mindset whenever possible, have the same love for the things that are important, looking for every point of agreement and unity we can find. Um, and I'm pulling that thought from verse 2. Um, looking at verses 3 and 4, we're, we're not called to cover our selfish motives. You know, it's oh, like, okay, I got to stuff that down. I got to like try not to think about that, you know, and, and, and there's value in, in, you know, trying not to think about something, but, but it's better to replace our thoughts than to just try to avoid thoughts. You know, we're not called to cover our selfish motives. We're called to find different motivations for what we do. We're not called to treat others as more significant than us, but to actually view them as more significant than us. You know, look at them and say, you know, we, we think, okay, God has great plans for me and he's, he's calling me. That's, this, is, this is stuff, this is a, pr- a process I go through. When I think about like doing Christian Geek Radar or doing something else that's promoting something else and I don't get in contact with them like a lot of people do. Uh, and part of this is just because I hate rejection. And so I, you know, this is, you know, kind of serves as a good excuse for that as well. But in addition, it's about me trying to just view others as more significant than, my, than myself. You know what? I don't need to, you know, this is this is the I'm just giving you a little snapshot of my diary. This isn't in my notes here. But you know, when I'm thinking of promoting what someone else is doing, you know, I, I don't necessarily reach out to them and say, uh, you know, hey, you want to do some cross promotion? It's just like, you know what? Um, I'm just gonna promote them because God made what I see them doing is good and there's excellence in it, and it's and from what from what I can see, it is adhering um, and with scripture and it is aiming to value scripture and uphold scripture in the way it conducts itself, you know, whatever this entity is, this person, this project, this community, whatever it is. And maybe God wants to do something bigger through them than he wants to do through me and Spirit Blade Productions. So I just want to view that as very possible, that they are more significant in God's kingdom plans than I am. Um, and so I want to think about them and their interests um, and not just my own. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we shouldn't, and when we're talking to people, I think the same thing is true. You know, it can be easy to want to like turn the conversation to talking about our opinions about, you know, movies or games or whatever, you know? Um, and, uh, I actually, in my conversations with people, I, tr- I really don't talk about my opinions a ton. I, I, I typically, because I just feel like, you know, if they want to hear me blab on something and they really want to know, well, then they'll ask and they'll follow up. And, you know, some people ask just like, oh, what did you think of this? I'll give them, you know, a short little, eh, it wasn't my thing, da 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 Or, oh, man, I really enjoyed that. And sometimes I'll expand a little bit. But 
I kind of feel like you know I, I've got I've got a I've got a you know we 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 can have blogs where we really go nuts, you know, <laughs> and we've got podcasts and uh, YouTube channels. All those things are options for us. You know, in my conversations with folks, I I, I try because it's not my natural tendency. I have to really work at this. I try to uh, be interested more than I am interesting to other people. I try to take interest in what their thoughts are and what their dreams and life goals are and what they're, you know, what, what's important to them this week and what's what they're thinking about and what's going on in their life, you know. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's part of what's, what Paul is getting at in these verses in verse 3 and 4. Now, maybe as a quick as a quick side note, this is a long in search of truth segment, so I apologize if you don't normally <laughs> listen for this segment. Um, but a quick side note, maybe you know, maybe you're asking yourself right now, um, how do how do I do that? You know, how do I actually change my motives? Like, really change my motives? How do I change the way I think and feel about things? It's just that's just the way I think and feel about things. How do I, how do you change that? That's just who I am. Well, you might notice that in verse 1, the origin, and I think what should serve as the catalyst for the changes Paul is talking about, the origin of all these things that Paul is calling us to is a combination of encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection, and sympathy. So those are things that we want to be genuinely experiencing um, because they will help feed into what Paul is calling us to in uh, in our relationships with others. Um, in my life, those things all develop because of my in-person relationships with believers who are further along in the faith than I am. So if you haven't been to a local church in a while, or if you're at a church where, you know, maybe you're even deeply involved, but, you you know, you just can't imagine really being able to genuinely relate to the leaders, sitting down with them, you know, having coffee, hanging out or whatever, you just can't see yourself really having a friendship with any of them for whatever we reason. Um, or, or, you know, or, or if you have the same feeling about not just the leaders of your church, but, you know, other Christians there that are older and wiser than you that you might, you know, potentially have, uh, can, you know, be able to talk to, you know, if there's just nobody at your church that's older and wiser than you in the faith that you can see yourself like reaching out to, and, you know, getting together with on a recurring basis, just to have coffee or whatever and talk and learn from them and share life with them that are older and wiser than you. That's important. Older and wiser than you in the faith. Um, then I want to encourage you to, to make January the time that you start checking out Bible teaching churches in your local community. Not churches that just teach, you know, kind of nice ideas and thoughts and morality from the pulpit, but that are actually getting into Scripture as the content of their sermon and their teaching on Sunday mornings. Um, that's the kind of church that uh, I think we really need to be at and be supporting and be learning from and growing in. That's where we're going to find those older and wiser Bible-focused Christians that we really need to have relationships with. Um, having those kinds of relationships are so much more important than anything else you could be involved in a church for, um, which is why I think it's worth, even if you're deeply involved somehow in some kind of function of the church or whatever, uh, however you're serving, if you're, if, if there, if you, if there are no prospects for relationships with older and wiser Bible focused Christians at your church, um, that's who, man, um, I, I would plead with you to, uh, to either find those in your church that you haven't found yet, or 
look at another church because a church that I, I firmly believe this, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail. I apologize again. I firmly believe that if a, that if a church is Bible focused, it produces people that you, that are older and wiser than you, that, that are ready to be real with you and have coffee and just be real with you. Um, I firmly believe that Bible teaching churches that have a Bible focus produce those kinds of believers. And so you should be able to find them at your church. And if you can't, then there's a good chance there's something going wrong there. Um, and that, uh, that you'd be much better off at a, at a, at a different church. And I don't, I really do not often, I want to be clear. I, I do not often suggest finding another church. I think that we jump to that way too quickly. When there's something we don't like, somebody that's offended us, somebody that's gotten on our nerves, and da, da, da. usually we leave churches because there's some conflict we don't want to resolve or some way in which we don't want to talk to the leadership and call them up to something higher or be called up to something higher by our leadership. You know, Usually it's something like that that causes us to... And, and so I really want to be careful not to like encourage you guys to be quick on that trigger to go find another church, you know. But this, I think, is a reason to do that. Um, because, as I said, those relationships will feed your growth uh, more than, than anything else, and which in turn will make any other ministry you do so much more useful and in line with God's will. That's why I think it's foundational, these kinds of relationships. Um, you, guys, um, you guys benefit, if you are finding value in these In Search of Truth segments, you benefit from the relationship I have had for about 10 years now, close to 10 years, with my mentor. His name's Dave Lindstrom. He's one of the uh, uh, elders at our church. He's also, also my dentist. <laughs> but he got his master's in uh, biblical studies, and uh, he's, he's, he's all, all kinds of geeky, fluent in Hebrew and Greek and that kind of stuff. But he's also a man who has been applying Scripture to his day-to-day -day life for decades. And so when I meet with him about every three weeks, I get to benefit from that. I get to have my, I get to be encouraged by him. I get to have my perspective challenged by him. Um, and, uh, and so everything else that I do benefits from that. And I have grown and been able to give to others from myself things that were not true of me that I wasn't able to give, you know, a few years ago because of my time with him. Um, so I really just want to encourage you in that to, uh, yeah. Th okay. That's it. Um, so back on Jesus and the incarnation, Jesus was really the, the ultimate model of the mindset that we should increasingly develop. He, he didn't see his equal status with God as something to hold on to tightly. Uh, he became an obedient servant to the extent that it brought about a horrible death. Now, again, you and I may never have to face that. But, you know, let's be honest, it can hyperbolically feel a little like dying when we choose to meet people where they are at um, instead of letting them have it with what we really want to say, you know, um, uh, or, or, or looking for common ground with people that we're just having trouble connecting with, looking for ways to support them, you know, um, instead of steering attention toward our thoughts, our accomplishments, our dreams, you know, or, you know, instead of walking into a room of people with kind of a snappy comeback at the ready because we feel like, okay, somebody's going to talk about the fact that I love such and such a thing, and but I've got this Bible verse ready to go, baby. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and I'm not saying it's not, you know, we want to have Bible verses ready to go, but I think you can tell from my tone that I'm talking about a different kind of attitude (laughs) that we kind of cover up with uh, our uh, piety. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to, I don't want to belittle and oversimplify, you know, what a lot of you are heading into this season. I haven't experienced the level of family difficulties that I know many of you have, but I also don't have a perfect extended family that sees eye to eye on everything. And I'll probably be reminded of that this Christmas. I've been thinking about that a little bit. Um, so what I'm asking God to help me do this season, just as I wrap up my thoughts here is uh, to Jesus just help me throw off my self-created burdens of self-justification or insecurity. You know, other people judge us, um, and that's on them. But us allowing their judgment to have weight, that's on us. That's on us. We create those burdens, um, and we give weight to the wrong words um, instead of to the words of Christ. And so we feel a need to justify ourselves because we again forget the grace and the righteousness of Jesus that has been placed on top of our record. You know, that's on us. So Jesus, help me help all of us to throw off these self-created burdens of self-justification and insecurity. Get my brain off of myself and help me instead to just be waiting on the edge of my seat for every chance to encourage or to invest in someone else in my family or at church. Um, And then help me also in the middle of that to take any pain that I feel and experience, take that to you, Jesus, um, on my own if I, if I need to do that. Um, Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected by his own friends and his own family. And he knows the incredible potential of still choosing to love and have patience with them in the midst of that. He's also near to us right now and ready to hear from us and share in both our difficulties and our exciting victory stories, which you may have to share with him after this season is done as a result of making ourselves available to be used by him. Incoming transmission. All right. Well, um, several comments from uh, YouTube that I'm going to be responding to this week. One that I almost responded to that was made on an old video that I made years ago, um, and it was it was like it was like one of those borderline comments that I was like, hmm, I'm not sure I agree with everything they're saying here. Do I want to respond to this? What's the tone of how they're expressing themselves? Do I think that based on their tone and their wording that they would be open to an alternate perspective? Or is that just kind of kind of put them on the defensive and make this an exchange that's unfruitful? <laughs> um And so I was like already kind of on the fence with their wording. And then I took note of their username, which uh, as part of their username, the word zealot was in there. It's it's like, yeah, no, okay, that's that's the tiebreaker. I'm not going to respond to this. So first, just I guess a public service announcement. If (laughs) if your username can have some impact on uh, how how people might think of you and interpret and and consider engaging with you. And um, yeah, so (laughs) it's like zealot or like, I I don't know, like... uh, 
god warriors i I don't know not necessarily i mean that doesn't necessarily that's not necessarily like a a turnoff but there could be certain usernames hardcore calvinist okay well all right if they're talking specifically about calvinist doctrine that i disagree with or maybe it's a arminian hardcore arminian you know doctrine that i would maybe disagree with or whatever the case may be if that's their username and that is like their online identity then okay uh i'm probably not going to engage with them on the topic related to what they have chosen to identify themselves by um so (laughs) anyway um here's a comment i definitely would not normally respond to uh but i i thought you know um sometimes i'll I did respond to sometimes I'll respond to these kinds of comments here on the podcast because I'm like, well, this person is almost certainly not listening to the podcast. They're a drive by shooter with their comments on YouTube. One of those drive by shooter type things where they are clearly not interested in having any kind of reasonable exchange. (laughs) They they just got I don't know who knows what's going on and what fueled this comment, but uh, they're just doing a drive by shooting. And if you engage with them, it's just going to add fuel to the fire, you know, so. But sometimes I'll still respond to those here on the podcast because there's some element of it that it's it brings up a topic that I was like, well, this is worth commenting on. I don't. It's not going to go anywhere useful with this individual person, but it's worth commenting on here. So, um, but I ended up actually just responding. First of all, it wasn't even um, going to be showing up publicly because it it used the f bomb in it, and so I've got I've I've got filters set up so that if people use certain words, one of them is the f bomb then it's not going to be approved. It's not going to go public. It's It has to be manually approved by me. Um, and it's not because I'm like against uh, rough language ever being used, but it's more like, okay, when people are tending to be uh, drive-by shooter commenters and just angry and, and uh, really, you know, kind of in a nasty mood or something, these are the words that tend to come along with their comments, you know? <laughs> And so I don't want, uh, I don't want people miss, I don't, I don't care if uh, people are going to, you know, rail against me or whatever, but it's more, um, that I don't want them, uh, mixing it up with other commenters. I I want as much as possible for those comment sections on YouTube to feel at least compared to other places on YouTube, relatively safe to interact with people underneath my videos. But anyway, so this user's name, the, the video was Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous PS4 on PS5 review. And Miha Sith. So there's another username. Okay, if you put Sith in your username, uh, you, you might have a negative disposition in general. <laughs> I don't know what the Miha part of the thing refers to. But anyway, for F's sake, exclamation point. We heard the first time that you have, all caps, PS5, exclamation point. You may put on metal, exclamation point. Um, so... Yeah, I was trying to figure out where this is coming from. I maybe they're just kind of feeling um frustrated that they aren't able to get their hands on a PS5 for financial reasons or for supply reasons or whatever. Um but it, they seem to really kind of make an assumption about my mentioning oops, bumping the mic there. My mentioning this and um so I did less so for them and and more for anybody else that might read that comment. Uh just thought I'd put this on the table just just to be clear about uh, why I, I mentioned PS5 repeatedly in that review. So in my reply, I said, not sure where the anger is coming. Uh, anger here is coming from. I don't think of it as anything admirable or a mark of status to have a PS5. 
And I have actually advocated many times on the CGC podcast for people to wait on purchasing one, as I don't think it's necessarily worth it yet for many consumers. However, because of the numerous performance problems that Kingmaker, meaning Pathfinder Kingmaker, the game before Wrath of the Righteous, um, uh, because of the numerous performance problems that Kingmaker had on the PS4, I thought it was important to be crystal clear that my review is based on how it runs on the PS5. So my intent in mentioning and emphasizing that is only to help PS4 users avoid potential frustration with the game on PS4. Uh, I hope you're feeling better today. Take care. And uh, left it at that. <laughs> and then predictably... Uh, uh, as soon as I approved that comment, they followed up with, uh, something that was almost identical to the first thing they said, which made me think they didn't even read my reply. And I don't know what's going on, you know, uh, in their life or if they're like people, is that a, is that a thing for people to like, I'm going to get online and like intentionally be unreasonable and see if uh, people will mix it up with me. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, this internet is so interesting. And so, you know, I was like, okay, well, moving on with my day. <laughs> There's nothing to say more to this person. Uh, but I do hope, you know, Miha Sith, if, if by some astronomical unlikelihood, uh, you are listening to the podcast, I, I hope you're doing well. I hope that, uh, you're not genuinely in a, in a place of anger, uh, like that. Uh, because that doesn't sound like, uh, doesn't, it sounds like a miserable way to live. Um, so I hope you are doing better today. Um, under the video, Purpose Changes How We Talk, which is, uh, again, the part of the Colossian study. That content was on the podcast last week. Spider Dan 1985. And if that's a name you recognize, I do end up kind of like uh, uh, sharing his comments and a few others. Kuba Booba. If you, if you hear these names, it's not because I think that like I'm favoring them or whatever. It, some people just tend to write comments that that give me things to respond to and talk about or that I think are very thought-provoking or whatever. And Spider Dan tends to be one of these guys. Spider Dan 1985 said, uh, Good video as always, Pater. I feel like I should just start copy-slash-pasting my comments on these videos, LOL. Cleaning up one's speech has always been something that I struggle with. I can be pretty foul-mouthed sometimes, which often makes me feel as if I don't have the Holy Spirit in me. I know a lot of it starts in my heart. I also struggle with this idea that we cannot ever be critical of anyone or anything, whether a person we know, a politician, or company. Sometimes it feels like we aren't allowed to say anything at all, ever, and the idea of existing at all seems like it's impossible. And I really felt like this was worth... Um, responding to of course to dan but then also here on the podcast just to make sure uh, if anyone else had a similar kind of takeaway from that that video or that content that that i did not intend but in my response i said i can relate it's an impossible task to as scripture says be perfect as our father in heaven is perfect However, I'd want to clarify that i don't think we cannot ever be critical of anyone or anything uh, there are sanctified versions of doing that, which I tried to mention in the video. Um, maybe I, I could have uh, emphasized that a little bit more to, to be more helpful to make sure that, that that point stuck. But my intended point is that caution is a good default, not a rule, but a good default to err toward, given that it can be easy to enter into unsanctified and selfish criticism of the actions or ideas of others. But it seems to me that we are likely in the right place if love is truly motivating us as we express criticism. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes I think when I would hear that, I'd be like, what does that mean? 
to, for, for love to motivate us to just kind of like try and be in this headspace of I am loving, I am loving, I am loving. That That's not it. That's not it. Um, for love to motivate us, the love must have a target, a specific target. It's I don't think it works to just try and summon up this general zen-like <laughs> vague attitude of love. That doesn't work. I, I, and I don't think that's what Scripture's calling us to when it even just as a blanket statement mentions love. I think it's talking about love with a specific target, which can always be God. There's always a way in which love toward God can have an impact on how we're interacting with others. But I think also the intent is love toward the specific individuals relevant to the thing we're engaging with or doing. And that, my gosh, is that a World War II bomber about to crash into my house we do have a, an airfield not far from here that that has uh, historical airplanes that fly now and then i wonder anyway but uh yeah so to get back to my notes here it does seem to me that we're likely in the right place if love is truly motivating us as we express criticism and then i tried to give an example uh if i think someone is being say legalistic and their claims that dungeons and dragons is evil I could find myself responding in a couple different ways regarding that person and the idea they expressed about D&D. The first way might be for me to say, that guy is insane and has no idea how unbiblical he's being. I would suspect that criticism like that coming from me would likely be motivated by defensiveness or self-righteousness on my part because there's no evidence of love in it, in either the words or as the one expressing it in my attitude if I take the time to examine myself. However, if my response was, man, it just hurts to hear that he's coming to that kind of conclusion. And if in saying that my genuine concern is for the harm that such legalism does and lack of discernment does to oneself and to others, then I think I'm more likely criticizing in a sanctified way. It really comes back to the motive of our criticism, which then also tends to have an effect on how we express it. Uh, so hopefully that gives a, a little better clarity on what I was intending to get at in that video. But thank you for your thoughtfulness, for your authenticity, Dan. Really appreciate it. He responded saying, thank you, Peter, for the encouragement and long thought out response. I always appreciate your time and our exchanges. And man, I so enjoy and value these kinds of exchanges. It's why I'm here, guys. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much. Anytime any of you guys want to engage with me uh, on that level. Um, and then in under my uh, video 1899 premiere review, this was this is a fun one. Jarawi, I'm never sure how to say that. It's John Wilkerson, um, who's been a listener and been involved in the community for a long, long time. Um, but anyway, he says, I finished the season, um, meaning 1899. I think you'll like where the show goes because of your fondness for, oh, crap. I can't tell you because it will give away the big reveal. <laughs> <laughs> and I legit laughed out loud the first time I read that. So thank you for the laugh, John, and for putting this one back on my radar. It's you guys would probably be surprised how quickly and easily I forget movies and shows after reviewing the premieres for them. E even if like, uh, well, maybe especially if they're in that category like 1899, where I'm like, I could see enjoying this, but I'm not sure if I will. And, and then I can forget about them um, and just forget that they exist and forget that I really even intended to give them a little bit more time to, to see if they could really, truly hook me. 
And so uh, it was it was great to be reminded that that show existed and that I had some thoughts about it that uh, would lead me to maybe consider watching more of it. So I'm definitely going to consider binging that one uh, over my Christmas break. So <laughs> thanks for that, John. Uh, let's see. Yeah, that's it. Feedback, feedback, guys. Give me your thoughts. Strike up some chat on our forums at christiangeekcentral.com. Leave a comment at youtube.com slash christiangeekcentral or patreon.com slash Productions. You type it. I read it. Might even share it on the show unless you tell me not to or want to be anonymous. That's, of course, fine, too. You can also email me a text or audio message at P-A-E-T-E-R at spiritblade.com. I'd love to hear from you anytime and most any way. And if you would like some help finding a good church in your area, I would love to help you if I'm able. Online resources and communities are good supplements, but by nature, they cannot speak to your particular situation like relationships in a local church can. The context for almost everything in the New Testament assumes that we are serving and building purposeful relationships in a local church. So whether you're in a church that lacks Bible-based intentionality or not attending any church at all, if I can help you get connected to an authentic, compassionate, Bible-oriented church, I would love to do that. Email me, please, P-A-E-T-E-R at spiritblade.com, and we can try to look at some websites of churches in your area together. Now it's time for my Geek Week highlights of the geeky stuff that I have been up to, starting with movies, really just one movie to talk about, and that's A Christmas Story Christmas. Now, as some of you guys know, I, over the years, have enjoyed uh, watching Christmassy-themed geek genre movies. Uh, I have a big bake-a-thon that I do once a year. I spend the whole day baking, and I like to just watch a big string of movies for like 12 hours or whatever. Um, and so I'm always on the lookout for something that would qualify as a, a geek Christmas movie. And they used to be very few and far between. And so I lowered the bar considerably for how much Christmas content needed to be in them. For example, I consider the movie Prometheus, the prequel to the Alien franchise, to be a Christmas movie merely because a Christmas tree is briefly put up on the spaceship and uh, one of the characters says, it's Christmas, we got to keep track of the passing of time. And then that's it. There's no talk of Christmas, there's no other shots of decorations or anything like that. It's just very brief mention of it. Um, or Suicide Squad. There's a brief scene in which uh, Deadshot is, uh, is, that, is that the character's name? I get him mixed up with another DC character that's kind of a similar marksman assassin type guy. I think it's Deadshot. Uh, th there's a flashback that takes place during Christmas. Okay, Suicide Squad, now a Christmas movie. Well, A Christmas Story Christmas is kind of the reverse of that. It is hardcore Christmas all over the place, and it's got just a little touch point of geekery um, that actually, in retrospect, makes me appreciate the first, the original classic as kind of having some geek appeal as well and the reason for that uh is that this is a, an hbo max um exclusive and it uses the same actor oh gosh what's his name but the same actor who played the blonde kid who was the main character in the original a christmas story movie um and there's a few of the surviving actors that are also involved in it but he's like a 40-something guy now with his own kids. And at the very start of the movie, he learns that his father has passed away. Like, uh, end of November, I want to say, or early December, he passes away. And his mom doesn't want... Because his dad loved Christmas so much, she's like, you know, we can deal with the memorial service, all those kinds of things that will come with mourning your dad. We can deal with that in, you know, in January, after Christmas is done. 
he would not want us to just be dour and stuff like that. So let's just, she says to her son, Ralphie, just promise me that we will make this just the best Christmas ever. And so it's like this, this solemn vow that really is played for comedy too. You know, I mean, it's not like, despite the, what I'm saying about the premise, it's not this down sad movie. Um, it's, uh, it, but this guy is like, okay, I'm going to try and really make this a great Christmas. And so he's got that internal narration going on, uh, that he had as a kid. It's a, it's not the same guy who did the voice of the internal narration. I think that, that actor has passed away. Uh, but actually this actor does his own internal narration and he does a pretty, uh, decent job of trying to capture some of the cadence and stuff. The writing, I think, excuse me, um, has that kind of almost overly dramatic, well, definitely overly dramatic prose style to it as he's describing, you know, the, the epic nature of all these things uh, that he's trying to bring about and conjure up to make Christmas wonderful, you know. So uh, the, the writing helps a lot, and I think he does the best he can to kind of mimic the performance style of that original narrator. Uh, so it works pretty well. I, I was not expecting to like this movie near as much as I did. So what's the point of Geek Connection? Well... As you might remember in the original Christmas story, he uh, there's this scene where he has a writing assignment from his teacher to um to it's right he writes a theme like what do you what do you want for Christmas and he wants this this BB gun, right? And well, the the carry through of that is in this movie is he is an aspiring writer and he for years has kind of been putting um normal nine to five work on hold and his wife has been supporting him in that and i think you know working and being the breadwinner while he does this uh so that he can pursue writing and specifically he's trying to sell a sci-fi novel um and he's just meeting rejection with publishers uh and there's some great things that they do to kind of mirror beats from the original like when he gives his paper to his teacher in the first movie he has this big fruit basket that he gives her when everyone else just brought like an apple or some little kind of nice little christmas gift he gives her this huge old fruit basket and he's hoping to kind of bribe her a bit um to get so he'll get a good grade on his uh, on his paper because he just thinks this is the most majestic thing anyone could ever read you know <laughs> and similarly he brings i can't remember what he what he brings but he brings some kind of like real gift you know to hopefully get off on the right foot with the publisher that he's trying to convince to to take his book um but anyway so it's just his the fact that he's a s- aspiring sci-fi writer and the rest of it then just starts to line up with me in particular, but I think also other geeks as well, being very imaginative. It kind of, him being a sci-fi writer, it uh, it it makes more sense of how imaginative he still is as an adult and how lost in his thoughts he can get. I think a lot of us geeks are very introspective and we have got a lot going on in our in our minds that's very creative and imagining various scenarios that might play out in our day-to-day lives overthinking things and imagining all kinds of crazy stuff. And so uh, I think that, uh, uh, and he still has these really big thick glasses that he's wearing. And so it's, there's just a lot of geek appeal in this, in this main character, I think. Um, and, uh, it's interesting because it obviously takes place decades after the original, which was, I want to say, like nostalgia for the forties and fifties. Um, and whereas this one is cozy nostalgia for the seventies and early eighties. And as someone who was born in 78, 
even though this probably takes place in the late 70s, there are things, there's Tupperware, there's clothing, there's furniture, there's Afghans and carpets and all this kind of stuff that that brings back cozy vibes of some of my earliest memories. Um like from like when I was really the age that Ralphie was in the first movie, uh, when, when Chris was, when it's like mid to early elementary type memories, uh, is what a lot of this movie conjured for me. And so, and it's got just some bittersweet heart to it as they're in the wake of the passing of his father. And I really appreciate movies that have some heart to them and that, and that go for bittersweetness. And I feel bittersweetness and some melancholy thoughts and stuff during the Christmas season I have for the last handful of years. And, and that's, and that's not something that I dislike or I've, I've come to appreciate Christmas more as I've had some of those bittersweet types of thoughts and reckoning with mortality during that time of year. And uh, so it was a really good fit for Peter Franson. <laughs> and of course, also, you know, as some of you guys know, um, my wife is the breadwinner for our family. Spirit Play Productions and Christian Geek Central, as much as I would love for them to, have not in these 16 plus years that I've been doing this ministry been a source of income for my family. And I've had various insecurities about that and regrets, and I mourn that. Um, and Holly has just uh, continually sacrificed so that I can continue doing this. And um, and it just, so there's just some great, uh, interesting mirroring going on there. And I think also um, a great message for creatives with dreams. Um, let me think here how I want to express this. I'm going to share as I'm wrapping up my thoughts on this now, and then I'll put a timestamp in for the next part of the Geek Week segment. And so uh, I'm going to be as vague as I can be um, and talk more on a thematic level. But if you want to go in completely spoiler free to this one, then just skip ahead now to the next section of uh, the Geek Week. But uh, I am going to try and be vague and and just speak thematically. Um, You know, I think that a lot of movies that are about a creative type who's an aspiring writer or filmmaker or actor or singer or something like that, it ultimately kind of ends with them achieving their dream and achieving fame and recognition and all this kind of stuff. Um, And I, I really don't think that's the best ending for that story because most people pursuing their creative dreams will never experience success in terms of broad recognition among millions of people and stuff like that. And so um, what I found in this story mirrored my life in some ways. And that is that instead of having that dream realized, there's something that is adjacent to it or like a pivot to it that is in the realm of what he's doing. And that is the door that opens for him instead And so he still gets to pursue and live out and work out this purpose that he feels he has as a creative type, Um, but it just looks differently than the dream that he had. And yet he finds contentment and enjoyment in that and um, a more, I think, abiding appreciation and contentment with his family relationships and the the love and the relationships that are right around him that he has right now. 
uh, instead of this this dream that uh, he you know wants to achieve that's that's far off or whatever you know. And so I think that there is um, uh, just a much more healthy perspective on pursuing your creative ambitions presented in the uh, the the uh, the end of this movie than in many others that are about creative types pursuing their dreams. So I, I really appreciate it for that. So uh, I was genuinely surprised because the, the the actor and some of the others that come back, they haven't had these big star careers where they've continued doing a ton of acting. In fact, this actor, I think, has been more of a producer and director in, in Hollywood than an actor. And I think that shows a bit. I mean, he's he's not the, the skilled and versatile type of actor that, uh, you know, that, that other actors are that would be in a leading role like this. But he fits the role. He fits what's being asked of him. Um, they, they don't demand of him this, you know, like breaking down and sobbing over the death of his father. That's not really, there's not a scene like that. Um, even so, I was feeling some of the, and I think that's more important is, you know, an actor once said to me that uh, um, uh, that it's uh, it's less important that I be able to cry and more important that I be able to make you cry, you know. And uh, and this was an actor that could cry, you know, that that could conjure up tears. So it wasn't like a cop out. Uh, but I think that there's there's a lot of truth to that. So he was doing. He was able to do what the the story called for, and I found the story moving. I found it funny. I was. I don't laugh at movies very much, and I was chuckling frequently throughout this movie. So anyway, I I don't know if it'll hit any of you guys the same way. I'm a bit of an odd bird. When it comes to the things I laugh at versus what other people seem to find funny. So, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think that A Christmas Story Christmas on HBO Max has some really uh, decent geek appeal and uh, some nice messaging, too. Moving on to comics now, I don't think I have as much to say here. But I read Justice League numbers 18 through 26 of the Rebirth era. And that's where the Legion of Doom is kind of cooking up this plan that's kind of going to involve the the destruction or remaking or whatever of the universe at the hands of this cosmic being named Perpetua, who is revealed to be the creator of the multiverse, um, alongside uh, a, a character named the World Forger. And they, and they have relationships to the Monitor and the Anti-Monitor. And so this story... This storyline and the Year of the Villain story, which I haven't actually read the Year of the Villain proper, the main series. I've just been reading, weirdly, all a bunch of other DC books in that time period. And so I'm getting a sense of what, what's going on in that main story just from reading all these tie-ins. But uh be interesting to finally get around to that. Anyway, um, but they uh, in this story, they, they visit this future kind of utopian Justice League. And I'm, I, I didn't find that very interesting. I, do, I tend to not find those what if type stories very interesting because they tend to not have much bearing on the characters in the here and now. It's just this diversion. Um, but I'm finding the other things more interesting. I, I think that probably the thing that's one thing that's been significantly engaging is hearing this creation myth established for the DC universe. They had kept it pretty vague for a long time. I remember in Crisis on Infinite Earths, and I think even prior to that, what had been portrayed as the origin of the universe was this image of a swirling mass of cosmic energy out of which a giant hand could be seen emerging. Um, And I think 
the original intent of that imagery was to suggest, not come out and say, but to suggest God. Uh, but in the years since then, it's been, I don't know, not exactly retconned, but established. I think that there was, in, in the Crisis on Infinite Earths story, you find out that there was a battle at the dawn of time that took place between the Anti-Monitor and the Spectre, and while they were struggling, one of their arms is being held by the other and, and pushed up, and it and it shoves through this portal or whatever, and so it's like the Spectre's hand or something that appears. I don't know, it's this really weird kind of anticlimactic and demythologizing of that moment that's kind of weird, but... um. But maybe even that has been retconned since then. But I really was uh, preferred it to be kept vague and just let me kind of imagine. And then I can insert my own headcanon and imagine that, yeah, that's, that's in some way representative of Yahweh. That uh, Yahweh was even responsible for the multiverse. But uh, more and more, they've kind of added more details and stripped away the ease with which I could uh, bring my own headcanon into the origins of the DC multiverse. And they're kind of doing that even more here with Perpetua, who is established, if I remember correctly, uh, created the multiverse and created it with kind of like this dark, malevolent intent, ultimately. Um, and uh, and so it's weird to kind of see the Justice League kind of react to that. And I remember once there was a, someone in our community, Reed Benson, who posted some panels of this just to get some feedback on, on the forums. And I think one of the panels he posted because it seemed familiar to me when I read it was Batman responding to the idea posed of like, well, what if we find out that everything that we've, that, that we've been made for, that the universe is made for is evil and dark and has this evil purpose. Then Batman's response is then we justice, we justice harder. You justice harder? I mean, that really sounds, first of all, very 21st century millennial pop talk <laughs> to take a um, uh, to take a noun and use it as a verb and stuff like that. Does that, that that kind of talk does that's not Batman? So I didn't like the way that was written from a character standpoint. But then also, it's this very much kind of relativistic uh, view of like, well, really, I mean, if the universe was made by a malevolent being. Um, and they are the source of all created reality, then your sense of justice really is kind of irrelevant because it's not a higher standard to which this being is uh, subject to. If it is, then we have to ask, well, where did this standard of justice come from? This Is it, do you believe in the absolutes of abstracts? I mean, we're getting a little philosophical here. You can... You know, spend some time over at reasonable dot, reasonablefaith.org to wrestle with these things more if you want. It's interesting stuff to, I suppose, certain people, myself being one of them from time to time. Um, but anyway, uh, I have to look at that and insert in my headcanon the idea that, okay, let's say in the in the multiverse that in order to, that, that God basically used um, or more specifically Jesus, because, I mean, we see that Jesus, the Word, uh, is responsible for creating um, the universe. Uh, I believe we see that in... Um, uh, is that... I'm getting my books mis mixed up. One of them is John, the, the Gospel of John. But there's an epistle, too, where everything was created by him, for him, and through him were all things created. Anyway... 
Um, so I kind of have to insert, okay, well, um, would, would, uh, the son have used, uh, a creature that he created as the means by which he created the multiverse. And I don't know, you kind of have to ask yourself at some point, is it really worth it to go through this mental exercise, you know, or do I just, instead of trying to make this work with my worldview, do I instead just kind of disengage with it on that level and read it as, you know, a, f- um, a play on philosophy, a play on morality, which is a lot of what comic books are. Is they're, they're not meant to really try to convince us that these realities they're presenting could be possible in the real world. Um, they're not science fiction in that sense of saying, well, maybe this could be. But they're more just, here's some crazy ideas and we're going to use these as a sandbox and a playground to explore these moral quandaries or these philosophical issues and stuff like that. And so, um, so I don't know. I, I go back and forth. Uh, I think it is kind of problematic. I mean, could, could God have used a, a fallen uh, created being, a corrupt created being to create or, or to do anything that's, we, I mean, we know that God does all the time use broken, evil people with broken, evil motives to bring about good. Uh, we see that at the cross. We see that with uh, uh, Joseph and his brothers in the Old Testament. You know, so we know that that's like, that is God, one of God's many things that he just is good at. <laughs> So could, is there some, by some stretch of the imagination, the possibility that, that he could, that I could make that work? I mean, I, I would have problems with it if I was posing that as an actual question in the real world, but can I just kind of say no to enough of my brain to accept it while reading comic books? Maybe, I don't know. Um, or do we have an instance of unreliable, unreliable narrators, you know, because ultimately we have characters or narration boxes that end up representing characters expressing what this creation myth is. Well, I mean, if if the creation myth in DC can be expressed one way and then retconned eventually and we say, well, actually, this was a misunderstanding. Here's the real truth behind it. Well, then surely in 10 years, all this can be established as well. Actually, that was an instance of having an unreliable narrator. Uh, sharing the creation myth of the multiverse, and actually that's not how things went down. They would just perpetua as an evil being would just have us believe that she's the ultimate whatever in the universe. Um, so, but I thought I would just share a little bit of, of my uh, thought process as I uh, have been reading this um, creation myth being established in the DC universe. Uh, but anyway, that, that's Justice League 18 through 26. On other levels, I'm still finding it very engaging. Lex Luthor, his status quo has changed really radically and weirdly, and I'm wondering how that's going to play out. Uh, so there's some there's some neat stuff going on there that, that I am uh, definitely interested enough to see it through uh, to the end of the story arc. And moving on now to video games. Uh, I have been playing, I played a little bit more of Elix 2. I, I thought, as I expressed last time, I think on the show, that I was done with it. I guess I wasn't completely done with it. I, I was feeling like I, I I really do want to see if I can explore more of this open world. You know, as I said, they unleash some new enemies and some new sets of enemies uh, at various encounter points in the open world that were keeping it fresh. And I was like, yeah, I, I want to go out there and see what I can find, see what I can do. Um, 
but they end up using a device that I found irritating. You've got a map that is uh, covering a lot of the same ground and some new ground as the map in the first game. Um, but there are some areas that are now walled off and unaccessible. However, not literally. And honestly, I wish they were walled off literally. What I mean by that is, you know, sometimes in games you run into frustrating invisible barriers where you're suddenly, you're running in one direction and suddenly you get, your character's just running in place. They can't go any further. Maybe you get a message on screen that says you cannot go any further in this direction. <laughs> it's just this arbitrary invisible wall that kind of uh, uh, yanks the rug out from under you as you're enjoying open world exploration. Well, they do an in-lore invisible wall here and there where there will be toxic radioactive poison in some areas or it'll be too cold because it's you know too high up in the air or you're getting into this mountain mountainous region but i mean it's it's still arbitrary because i'll be walking around in a cold winter environment and suddenly i start moving in one direction that the elevation's not any higher it's just suddenly much much colder and if i stay in it for more than a few seconds i start taking damage and i'll die um and so I, I wish that they, I mean, you can litter your own map with custom markers, which is great. So if I wanted to, and I did actually start doing this, I could start labeling on the map those points and create kind of boundary lines on my map that mark where I can't go any further. But that just started, quickly started becoming uh, boring. And I was like, I, I'm not into this. I think I've... There's probably some stuff in this world that I'm going to miss now because I'm not really exhaustively exploring it, but I just don't like this experience of flying around until I hit a barrier and then putting a marker on my map and then moving left or right to see how far that barrier extends and putting more markers on my map as I do that. Like, this is, ugh, I'm not into this. So I really wish they would have just put those, put indications on the map. Can't go here. It's radioactive or can't go here. It's too cold. Um, but they didn't. And uh, that sucks. <laughs> so I really had a great time with Elix 2. As I said before, it is neck and neck right now with uh, Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous in terms of what is going to be my favorite game of 2022. I still don't know which one. I want to try and get in a roughly equal amount of time with Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous in the month of December so that by the time I get to January and I'm ready to kind of really work on that list and make some content about it, I will have put as much time into both games um, to, to more properly, you know, judge them against each other. It's still going to be hard, though, because, you know, I, I always struggle with recency bias. The, the most fresh experience tends to feel like uh, maybe the better one or I don't know. Um, so we'll see. But I am now done with uh, Elix 2. Had a great time with it. But I've moved on to Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous. And finally now was able to get enough funds to replace all of my default in-game uh, party members that you meet that have backstories and quests and blah, 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 and preferences and things, ways that you have to treat them or ways that you need to behave around them in order to keep them in your party, ultimately. And I just, I don't want that. I, I don't want that. I want an all-custom group of just greedy mercenary heroes that I pay them a flat fee and they are with me to the bitter end. No matter what I say, no matter what I do, they I, they just follow me and, uh, yeah, they do not question my judgment, ever. <laughs> uh, and so finally, yeah, I got... Uh, and, and, you know, the, the other party members, they stay at my base, 
So I can still take advantage of their quests, and plan to, actually. But then at least I only have to swap out one character in my group of six uh, to take along this, uh, this other character to do their little side quest and get the, the experience and loot from that, whatever I can get from it. So, yeah, I, I'm very, uh, very happy to be in that place now with Wrath of the Righteous. I found a, a nice sweet spot with the difficulty. Uh, I, I did decide there, I did decide to put on auto control the combat mini games. There's these kind of turn-based tactical skirmishes that represent your army battling the enemy army in various situations. And it's similar to the kingdom management thing in Kingmaker, where it's a separate game, really. It's a little mini game that you're just recurringly coming back to, but it has an impact on the rest of the game. In fact, if you do poorly enough in these side games of these two games, you can fail and lose the game. At least Kingmaker, definitely that was the case. And Kingmaker, I just did not have the patience or trust in myself to properly handle those mechanics. And I did not want to risk some kind of auto-fail, insta-fail scenario of the entire campaign. So likewise, I just found myself uninterested and really, I don't want to say incapable. I, I, I think I could learn the systems and learn to be good at these tactical skirmishes. But I was just like, this is not what I'm in this game for. So they give you the option, thankfully, again, to just put that on autopilot and insta-succeed in all those encounters. And so I did that. But, man, scratching all these great D&D itches. I'm even in some snowy environments now, so it's good timing to have, like, some wintry vibes. But, yeah, having a great time with Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous. Don't really have anything more to say about that for now. I purchased a little $8 game, and that's not even on sale. It's $8, $7.99 on the PlayStation Store. I think maybe the same price on the Xbox Store. It's called What the Dub. And I had seen this played by um, the MinMax podcast, which is a gaming podcast that I listen to pretty regularly. But in their streaming events, their marathon fund fundraisers for like Extra Life or whatever, they'll play What the Dub. And, uh, and this game basically is a party game, and you just need uh, cell phones or devices that can browse the internet. You don't have to pair them to your console or anything like that. They just give you a simple website to go to and a room code to enter into, and you can enter into it. And uh, and then they show you a clip of a movie, an old crappy B-movie, a number of which are sci-fi or superhero or fantasy or something like that. So there's definitely some nice geek appeal in there. Uh, and they'll, they'll, there'll usually be one bit of dialogue by one character, and then they will silence the dialogue of a character after that first line. And they don't give subtitles to say what the original line is. You, in that moment, then, everybody in the group makes up their own reply to it. And you can control the amount of time that that uh, you are given to come up with a response. And so my wife, she is doesn't think of herself as creative uh, she's musical. I think she's creative in some ways uh, that she wouldn't think of herself as being necessarily creative. But uh, but I mean, she is artsy. She does have creativity in her. But I think specifically in terms of being of writing dialogue and being witty and stuff like that, that's not her thing. Um, and so I I just dialed it up to a full two minutes to come up with something. And it shouldn't be long anyway. It should be pretty short. Uh, and then they mix them all up and play them all back for you. And you don't know who made which. 
And the way that it's played back is with like a like a robo voice. But robo voices are a lot better than the speak and spell toy from the 80s. And so, you know, it's it's fairly wooden in the delivery, but it's very clear. And part of part of the uh, I think the humor even comes from the wooden delivery of the robo voice. But anyway, uh, you you also have the option of throwing in some sound effects and stuff. And uh, and so you one at a time see the scene replayed um, with a different set of dialogue inserted is like the second part of the dialogue. And then you vote on which one you like, or really which one you probably think is funniest. Uh, and you know, over the course of multiple rounds, you know, a winner is determined. There's a ranking and stuff like that, but really the fun is just seeing what people come up with and just laughing about it. And Oh my gosh. Um, I bought this after my son Asher had, finally caught up and completed work that he'd been behind on for over a month because of sickness. There's a sickness going around uh, in Mesa and that it has a long, uh, not just a long tail. I mean, it lasts a long time. It sticks around for like over a week and it's not COVID, but it's something long that's lame. <laughs> and I had it too. Uh, and it, he, he missed, you know, many days of school. And so was really behind. And so it was quite an achievement for him to finally get caught up on all the things he needed to catch up on. And so I just kind of also thinking about various social things coming up with family in town and friends coming over and stuff. I was like, this would be maybe a good, a cool thing. It's really cheap. Uh, it looks like it's a lot of fun. And so I got it. But, uh, you know, first I got it just to celebrate with uh, with Asher. And uh, so the four of us, me, Asher, and my wife, Holly, gathered in uh, my office here, each with a device, and played this, I don't know, for about 30, 45 minutes, and we're just laughing a ton. Um, so, and, and everybody won uh, around, you know, a whole, a whole game. Like, each game was like five rounds, five different clips, you know, that you're coming up with stuff for. And so... That that should be an indicator that, like, it's not necessarily the person that's most creative that's going to win. I mean, it's, it's it really can be spread out quite a bit to uh, to who's going to win. So um, and Holly had some funny ones in there, too. You know, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I definitely had the weirder ones. I think I had the edge in a number of cases, but they also do the you know, I'm not thrilled about it, but who cares? It's not about the, the points and winning anyway, but they do the the uh, family feud scoring system, or I think Jeopardy does this too. We're like toward the end of the game, like you get triple the points for everything. <laughs> so uh, most of what you do in the first parts of the game, the first three fourths of the game aren't really going to make a big difference. It's how you perform in the final rounds. Um, but anyway, yeah, we all won a game. I, I do wonder if it's going to wear out its welcome because when I played it with my just one of my boys and my sister, Corinne, who came over for a hangout night. I just wanted to show her this game. And so we played one or two rounds with her and we were all a tough crowd. Uh, we were not laughing. Um, and uh, maybe I was just getting used to the kinds of punchlines that Titus would come up with or my own that I would come up with, you know, Titus was getting used to and uh, Corinne wasn't feeling her best anyway. And so, you know, she probably wasn't in the most, you know, humorous mood. Uh, although we did watch Cheers after that, and uh, both of us were laughing, I think, more than we expected while watching that. So I don't know if this game kind of may have a tendency to wear out its welcome, lose some staying power. Maybe it will benefit from not always playing it with the same people, but kind of changing up who you play it with. Which I, I do think, if that's the case, uh, I'm still likely to get some good use out of it this 
month as we have different social situations with different sets of people that I would pull this out for. So um, anyway, so that, that game is called What the Dub and full price $7.99. I think well worth that price. Uh, even if you have just one social thing coming up that you think it would be a good fit for. Uh, Monster Hunter World Iceborne, back into it now. And I was back into it before I even got the news about Monster Hunter Rise. But after that news, oh man, I, I think I'm just going to be hard into Monster Hunter World Iceborne again until I hit the 1,000-hour hour mark. I'm at 960-something. And there's enough stuff that I still want to do, enough boxes I still want to check, that uh, I, I don't think I'll do everything and fight every monster. I mean, there's one final optional monster that I don't even know if I'm going to be able to do him solo. And if I am, I, I can't imagine, I don't know how many, if I might have to put in another thousand hours to really grind and do what I need to do to be ready for him. I have no idea. So I don't really have those kinds of aspirations at this point. Really, I just want to kind of do the missions that I haven't checked off yet, the optional missions that I will find fun and not overly frustrating and challenging and stressful and stuff like that while I cap off that thousand hour mark of time put into the game you know um let's see here uh but yeah i i've i've got my christmas outfits out and you can color coordinate them so i got like a mrs claus kind of vibe with my hunter um and uh i i you know again before this announcement i really considered getting monster hunter rise on pc uh, I thought about it because it, it often goes on sale. I think full price. It's already pretty reasonably priced. And I have a PC now that could run it. But at the end of the day, with the option right there in front of me, I was like, I just, I don't want to play. Excuse me. I don't want to play it on PC. I just don't want to play it on PC. Even if I have a gamepad. There's just some things about it that I didn't want to deal with. Um, so, uh, and I won't get into all the reasons for that. But uh uh, but that that did cause me to want to get back into Monster Hunter World Iceborne a little bit uh, to see if I could hit a thousand hours before January. So uh, I'm having a good time with that. Um, briefly, a public service announcement about some games that are on deep discounts, like under $10 are the ones that I'm only typically going to mention. And I don't do this very often, but uh, worth mentioning, Mad Max, uh, five bucks on the PlayStation Store. It might... The sale might be over on Xbox, but it was uh, on sale for for about five bucks on Xbox. If you missed it, it does recurringly on both the Xbox store and the PlayStation store get that deep discount down to about five bucks. And that's a great post-apocalyptic open world car combat game. Um, How many games even have that description? It is really a unique game and has no business being as good as it is, given that it is licensed from a movie. Uh, So that's a, yeah, I I did a review of it way back in the day, one of my early reviews on YouTube for video games, but I've played it a number of times since. And if if all things being equal, I would recommend the Xbox version because you can get 60 FPS uh, on that. Um, but I mean, it's great on either. It's great on either. What a, what a cool game. Um, Pathfinder Kingmaker, just talking about, uh, Wrath of the Righteous, but, uh, um, it's $8 on the PlayStation store and probably deeply discounted so much, maybe because of some of the technical issues that the game had with lots of crashing and stuff. But, and I thought I was never going to finish that game, but as I reported to you guys in the Geek Week segment, um, uh, a month or so ago, whenever it was, I was wrapping that up. Uh, I found some tips online that allowed me to really put an end to those crashes. Namely, just stick to four 
four or five saves max and turn off auto saving so that the game isn't itself adding to your save files. So keep a small number of save files and then anything you don't actually need while you're out adventuring and dungeon crawling, leave in your stash back at your base. If you can reduce the number of saves that you're dealing with uh, and you can reduce the number of stuff that you're carrying on you, that really does go a long way toward uh, helping reduce and eliminate crashes. Um, So having said that, I was really happy with how my experience ended up in the final, I don't know, 20 hours or so of that game. And so based on... Based on that, I would recommend Pathfinder Kingmaker for eight bucks. Absolutely, if you love uh, Baldur's Gate, other games with real time with pause, like Pillars of Eternity, even if you like Dragon Age Origins, which also has is really a lot of. I mean, you're it's a more zoomed in camera for sure uh, than other real time with pause Baldur's Gate inspired games. But I mean. Uh, or, or Final Fantasy XII, for that matter. If you like real-time with pause RPGs, you like that strong, traditional D&D aesthetic, uh, there's a lot to love in Pathfinder Kingmaker. I think even with its glitches and bugs, it was my number two game the year it came out. Of course, they did get worse as I got into the game. But as I said, ultimately, I found some tips online. Um, sadly, they didn't patch those issues out themselves. But I, I found some tips online that are like, yeah, I can live with only keeping about four or five saves and traveling with less in my inventory i can totally live with that and that dramatically fixed my experience with pathfinder kingmaker so i feel pretty good about that based on my experience now you do hear of course with games that are buggy that some people will be like man i didn't have any of those problems and another person will say this game was completely unplayable so this is not me guaranteeing Um, but if i were listening to me and i hadn't played pathfinder kingmaker yet but i love that genre and thinking about that price tag of eight bucks, seven ninety nine, I'd be like, that's worth the risk. That's absolutely worth the risk. So, um, yeah, Pathfinder Kingmaker, eight bucks, definitely recommend considering that one. Bard's Tale Four Director's Cut, also on PlayStation Four. This was one of my favorite games the year it came out. It might have been, I don't know if it was as high as number two, might have been as high as number three. Anyway, love that game. This is a turn-based, grid-based mostly just the dungeons ma'am dungeon crawler rpg Uh, and you can watch my review of it and whatever year it came out you can watch my best games of that year and hear more of why i love that game because i recorded my thoughts on it at that point after i'd have finished it i love the musical elements of that game and and just the vibe that the unique way in which they add to the experience uh appropriately given that it's called the bard's tale uh, but man, what a what a special game I found that to be and underappreciated. You know, I think that the the graphics, when you look at some of the, the textures up close, they do have a bit of that pukey Xbox 360 vibe to them. But that's most of the time not what you're looking at. You're you're having these turn based uh, battles and uh, exploring dungeons and getting loot and upgrading your guys and just good stuff. And the option in the director's cut to skip almost every single puzzle in the game. And the very, very few that you can't skip and just have the game autocomplete for you, uh, you can find the solutions to pretty easily online. And so if you don't like puzzles, even though that game has a ton of them in there, the director's cut just gives you this magic spell you can cast to have them auto-solve for you. It's awesome. I think it's called Struggler's Lament. (laughs) 
so yeah, that's Bard's Tale 4, Director's Cut on PlayStation. Uh, definitely uh, recommend exploring uh, that as a possible possible purchase if you like what you're hearing me say about it. And then finally, for 7 bucks, Chasm. This is a uh, symphony-like game in the Metroidvania genre. Uh, so it's a side-scrolling pixel art action RPG with the ability to grind for XP and levels so that if you're not good typically at those types of action-y side-scrolling games, you can compensate for that by grinding for loot and XP. And um, I I think that in terms of its visual aesthetic, it is a little more plain than some other games in the genre. And maybe part of that has to do with, well, it's it's an indie game. Maybe part of that also has to do with it's designed to randomly reorganize its level structure every time you play through it. And so it has a bit of that roguelike quality, the, but the gameplay is not what I would describe as a roguelite or a roguelike at all. It's just that one element that every time you start a new game, a new playthrough, it kind of changes the the loadout of the, the maps and how, how things are structured. But, um, but man, that is... Uh, it's i think one of my favorite symphony likes that are that's not an actual castlevania symphony like game um so yeah definitely worth checking out reviews for i did not do a review of that one myself i've talked about it and played it some in my content like with live streams and stuff um but uh, but i haven't done a re- uh, actual review of it but i i definitely think it's it's worth checking out if you like games in that specific subcategory of metroidvania that i refer to as symphony likes so that's chasm for $7 on the, the PlayStation Store. Uh, let's see here. I am considering... I did, I'm not recommending these, but they are on sale. And all of these on the PlayStation Store are on sale until the 21st or the 22nd. I don't know. So maybe just put in your mind the 20th as the last day you have available for sure to, to get these at these prices. But also on sale is Axiom Verge. That's another Metroidvania, but it's not a symphony-like because I don't think it has RPG stat grinding and loot grinding um but this is you know a, a very respected game in the indie community for among people who like metroidvanias it in some ways was a standard in the genre for a while at least in the indie community um and you know compared to other indie games and uh i always kind of wanted to like this one but i was like i don't know if i'm going to be able to succeed i don't know if it's going to be too difficult for me and i just there was no way to try it out uh, first to see. And, uh, when I saw it on sale, I was like, well, let's look one more time and see if somewhere there are some cheats online that some people have discovered. And lo and behold, yes, there are. And like straight up invincibility cheats if I want them ultimately. And so I'm like, yes, because I really liked playing through the first Metroid on NES, which is a major inspiration for Axiom Verge, but I only liked playing that game with the invincibility cheat. Uh, which just allowed me to kind of explore, to take in the atmosphere and the uh, the, the sparse musical score. Uh, it's really cool stuff in that in that, that first Metroid game. And Axiom Verge is really pulling a lot from that in terms of its mood and its look and stuff. Um, so yeah, at, at a cheap price, I think it's seven fifty, seven ninety nine. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm considering buying that. I probably will end up pulling the trigger on it. I, I think I want to finish one symphony like that i already have namely uh Deedlet, record of lotus war Deedlet in wonder labyrinth which i did finally find a map to get myself unstuck from the dead end that i kind of felt i was in during the 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 
recent game save marathon that I played it in. Um, so I'm unstuck there and I'm, uh, I'm back in it to win it. But, uh, uh, I think if I can finish that one before this one is done being on sale, then I will definitely pull the trigger on Axiom Verge. Um, let's see. Oh, and the way that if you're wondering, the, the, the cheats that I found are related to some kind of a password system that's actually built into the game. And if you do a certain button input press at the main menu, I think it is, you can get the item in your inventory that gives you access to the password entry screen, the debug menu or whatever the crap it is. And from there, there's a bunch of codes that people have discovered uh, to, to, to put in there. And so, um, yeah, uh, you, you'll have to do some creative Googling, but you ought to be able to find it. So that's Axiom Verge that I'm very strongly considering. And then I did pull the trigger on Super Perils of Baking. I actually played a little bit of this. I wasn't intending to this week during the get good live stream because i ended up finishing the spider-man missions that were frustrating in the main game and in the dlc so i don't have anything else left that's frustrating that game maybe some stuff that'll take some time to unlock the things i want to unlock but dang i didn't put this in my notes but i will probably be playing some more of that maybe even trying to clean up all those side missions so i can get all the unlocks that i want to get but uh, but anyway, I, I ran out of things that really felt like I needed to get good at them. And so spontaneously, I just pulled out Super Perils of Baking during the last 20 minutes of the live stream. And this is created by Lilymo Games, which is co-owned by Colin Moriarty, um, who's a name that I've mentioned a number of times before. He used to be at IGN, was a, 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 one of the big editors there, and then helped co-found Kind of Funny with some IGN co-workers that stepped away from there. And then later on, he stepped away from Kind of Funny and created Colin's Last Stand, or now it's Last Stand Media. And I've actually been interviewed by him twice on Last Stand Media content, and I've had him, I've interviewed him once on uh, in CGC content, and... Uh, um, hoping he was he was very open to the idea when I last uh, talked to him after the the last thing we recorded together uh, to the idea of having him on CGC uh, again when his upcoming um, JRPG style game comes out, which is still a ways out. He hasn't given any kind of release dates or anything like that, but uh, he's dealing with some themes in there. Uh, that I don't think he's been public about yet, so I'm not going to say anything in detail about them. But uh, he's dealing with some themes in there that I think will be very relevant to Christians. <laughs> and so I was like, hey, I would love to have you on and talk to you about this after this game comes out, after I've played it through, and talk about where you're coming from and why you're exploring these particular things that are very, very relevant to Christians. <laughs> anyway, but Super Perils of Baking, he just wrote the game. Um He's co-owner, but uh, the Barry something is the programmer who does all the programming and most of the, the graphic design and uh, often the music as well. So this is a, a ground-up remake of the first game that Lily Mo made before it was co-owned by Moriarty. Uh, but now it, it's, it's a Mario-style game. I would even say in some ways Super Mario World on the Super NES. It's got a lot in common with that in terms of the overworld map elements um, and some gameplay elements, you know, where you uh, get power-ups that will give you the ability to shoot projectiles or, you know, you when you get hit by an enemy, then you lose a power-up and you get smaller, quote-unquote. It's actually, instead of becoming smaller like Mario, you lose props. Like, you're, you get boxing gloves and then you get a chef's hat and the ability to like throw a whisk because you're you're this baker whose brother you were 
you grew up being competitive with as bakers, and he went down a dark path and put on this cursed baking hat that brought all his creations to life and made them evil. And uh, and you, as your brother, you're trying you're trying to kind of like rescue your brother from this dark path that he's gone down. And so you are going through these levels to ultimately try and reach him and save him, which is really kind of sweet. And I I can see some potential for some uh, some nice nice little touching family drama moments. We'll see. It's written all in kind of this uh, this rhymy nursery rhyme, you know, quaint rhyming style that. I could do without. I'm not really into it. And the meter isn't always uh, as kind of like synced up and perfect as I'd like, which I don't know if that's a choice or not. Moriarty, I think, is a drummer or he's he has that in his past. And so rhythmically, he certainly has a sense of rhythm, but maybe it's just not coming through in his uh, the writing of his his syllabic meter, you know, or something is not quite working for me. I don't know. Um, but anyway, I mean, I, I, so I could do without that. Uh, hopefully, um, you know, that, that won't get in the way of maybe some potential sweet moments that'll come later on. But so I'm playing super perils of baking. And one of the reasons I pulled the trigger on it was because I've heard Colin talk about how it's designed to be really finishable by anybody, by young children and stuff like that. Now, what, he finds finishable and what I find finishable are very different things. <laughs> uh, he has called some things easy and very playable and approachable that I'm like, ah, no. <laughs> um, but anyway, so, so I, there is some, definitely some pushback. I did die a, a number, a number of times, not a crazy amount of times, but I'm still in the early levels. So who knows how difficult it'll get, but I pulled the trigger on it because once in a blue moon, I do like a little retro platformer, just a quaint little platformer, and uh, and it was on sales. Like the price is right. Let, let's give this a go. Maybe this will scratch a nice itch that I'd I'd like to have scratched. And so uh, I, I was enjoying it for you know what it is. I don't know. Once I started experiencing some pushback, especially during the stream, that made me think. I don't know how often I'm going to come back to this. Maybe I'll just save it for streams when I'm doing a get good themed stream or whatever. Um, but the, the, the really challenging stuff is all optional objectives, uh, like finding a certain number of cookies, you know, instead of like stars or coins, they have cookies. Uh, there's the, the, these letters B A K E that spell bake, of course. And you know, that, that's their collectibles that to reach them, you don't need to reach them to finish the level, but it's hard, really hard in some cases to find a way to reach them, you know? So, and there's also a timer that's constantly running, not down, but up. And so, it's not a situation where if you don't finish the level in a certain amount of time, you die like Mario. I always hated that, but rather you have a goal to finish it in a certain amount of time. And there's, you know, maybe some bonuses for finishing it, you know, even shorter than the recommended or goal, amount, the default goal time. So, so these, these things that are also often linked to the achievement system on PlayStation and on, on Xbox, uh, the tro- trophy system, I guess on PlayStation achievements on Xbox. Um, and I really like that approach to creating difficulty in games where it's the difficulty is in optional objectives that are not required to finish out the game to see all the the levels and the worlds that the designer has created and to finish out the story that the writers have written um but it's uh, you know it's it's not going to get in the way of that but it's still there for those who want it and i think that's just wonderful design they also do that in habroxia and habroxia 2 they allow the games to be because those games are like symphony likes, but side scrolling space shooters. 
by that I mean you're collecting currency during those games that can you can up, use to upgrade your ship and offset the difficulty. There's something a little bit similar to that uh, where you collect these cookies and you can spend them at shops before you enter any level to give yourself an edge and start out with power-ups. But it's not a full-on like RPG-type upgrading system like in the Hubroxia games. So, But anyway, it's... I'm liking what I'm experiencing of the mechanical design so far. And I think that if there were a game that's inspired by Super Mario Brothers that I were to finish without using cheats, this might be it. So we'll see. I don't know if I'll ever have more to share uh, on that again. But that's Super Perils of Baking, and it's on sale for, I want to say, $7.50 right now on the PlayStation Store. Again, all these sales on PlayStation are going until the 20th, 21st or 22nd. Um... And then finally, Monster Hunter Rise was announced, first rumored and then confirmed uh, with trailers that went up the next day that maybe I'm wondering we're going to we're intended to be released with the Game Awards next week, which I do plan to watch and probably make some comments on on the show. Um, But uh, I'm thinking maybe this this leak got out and they're like, okay, cat's out of the bag fire off trailers <laughs> sorry game awards <laughs> but it was really cool to see um not to, to see that these were coming to uh, the consoles that i have and that they'll run and look better on maybe not still look as good and, and run as well as monster hunter world does because they're, it's a switch game and so I think that they will probably look and run as good as they have as good as it's looked and run on the PC version which came out earlier this year, I believe. Um where reviewers were saying you know, hey, yeah, it definitely looks better than the Switch version, 60 uh FPS, 4K visuals, but it's still based on textures that were designed to run on a Switch. And so uh and polygons and stuff that were designed to polygonal models were designed to run on a Switch. And so it has a little bit of that. Some people would describe it as like a switch stink on it, you know, and I don't know. I looked at the, some of the videos of the footage and stuff. I'm like, you know, granted I'm watching it on YouTube. So the fidelity is not as high. Um, and I'm watching it on a screen. That's not as big as the screen I play games on. So I won't know until I'm actually playing it, but I suspect I'm going to be, um, completely satisfied with the visuals and will enjoy exploring a lush new world, uh, that's very much, in the vein of Monster Hunter World. Uh, and there's, you know, th- this is a game that I've just kind of had to grudgingly keep off my radar and try not to think about and think about the fact that it exists and I can't play it unless I buy a Switch. Because I do not want to, I do not want to buy a Switch. And I've wanted and hoped for this to come to uh, the, you know, the proper modern consoles that have more power to them. I've wanted that since, you know, this game first came out. That or... Monster Hunter Generations Ultimate. I actually thought we would get Generations Ultimate on the other consoles first because it came out first. Um, But I suspect that Capcom, with just the crazy success of World, which is the biggest selling game in Capcom history, not Street Fighter, uh, not Resident Evil, but by a long shot, I think... um, I mean, the only question is long shot or not. Whether it was a long shot or not, I think it is a long shot. But definitely, it is the best-selling game in Capcom history. Which is cool for me as a a new fan of the franchise now. Because that says they're going to try and make more of these and make them as accessible as possible to people. 
So I don't know if the next one will be, if they'll do another one that's exclusive to any one console. Uh, I don't know. Uh, unless Capcom gets purchased by by Nintendo or, or Capcom or Sony. Or, or Xbox or Sony, I mean. Um, well, I guess it wouldn't be Xbox. It'd be Microsoft. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I am now just... It's coming January 20th. So it, it's interesting because, you know, I, I love Christmas. It's such a bittersweet, beautiful time of year as I reflect on various things. As I reflect on the promise of eternity, the promise... You know, I, I think about... I, I get melancholic sometimes and, and think about mortality um, and I'm just reminded by various elements of nostalgia, which I'm actually going to talk about in some content on the podcast next week, I believe, uh, even nostalgic secular elements because of what I see them grasping at, uh, point me toward the beautiful world that is promised to us that Christ is going to bring about. And so there's all kinds of things I find myself pondering during the Christmas season that make it a beautiful season, an emotional season, a bittersweet season, a sobering season, just a mix of emotions that I think are really worthwhile to me. And I hate seeing that season come to an end because of how much I've come to value and appreciate it. And so I, I get the January post-Christmas blues pretty hard. <laughs> and last year I found some experiences and some ways of thinking that I could enter into that would uh, bring meaning and value to even that. Uh, so I um, am in a different way. I've been looking forward to taking on that, that that emotional challenge in my life of like dealing with the post Christmas blues. And um, it, but uh, so, so I'm looking forward to taking some of the perspective that I processed. I am coming back to monster hunter. Don't worry. <laughs> this all connects. <laughs> I am, you know, looking forward to taking some of those things that I learned that I processed last year in January and bringing those to my processing in January to to hopefully be in the the headspace, the emotional place, the heart space that God wants me to be in. Um but I can't help but think that, you know, <laughs> even though it shouldn't be, you know, what what uh, what drives my emotions and it shouldn't be the way that I that I uh, go about looking to cure my emotional uh melancholy i do think that uh, monster hunter rise has a good chance of uh helping me fight off post christmas blues <laughs> knowing that that's coming january 20th january 20th is when monster hunter rise comes to playstation and xbox consoles both to the uh current gen and then also to the xbox one and the playstation 4 um so wow yeah i I, I kind of had started to give up on the idea, but uh, getting this, seeing this uh, leak and then having it confirmed the next day, I'm like, I am pretty happy. <laughs> so it's put a fire under me to play more and just extract any remaining value I think I can get from Monster Hunter World between now and then. Because I have heard that there's some gameplay elements of Rise that just make it difficult to go back to Monster Hunter World. Uh, things that, uh, that that are just kind of some nice upgrades. And so if that's the case, I do want to try and get whatever remaining enjoyment I can out of Monster Hunter World before I find myself coming back to it and finding it spoiled by the upgrades in Rise. Yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, so I've got a fire under me to play Monster Hunter World Iceborne um, and finish that out, quote-unquote, 
And then also I've already started like downloading some podcasts that had a Monster Hunter focus, but were specifically focused on Monster Hunter Rise. And so I'm going back. I'm like, okay, I'm going to start with this podcast. I found at least one that I, that I like so far that is covering Rise and they're still covering it from a preview standpoint before its release. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, they're kind of in the, uh, the, the, the pre-release hypey vibe that I'm finding myself in right now, which I do want to try and keep under control. I, I never like to willingly just engage in hype um, because I think it can be unhealthy for me. And I think it's, I've seen how it can be unhealthy for other geeks as well. But, uh, but anyway, I'm enjoying like just kind of getting on the, the train, the hype train, I guess, for Monster Hunter Rise right now. And looking forward to that uh, as it releases on uh, current-gen consoles January 20th, um, 2023. Anyway, <laughs> that's my Geek Week. That's all for this week, guys. Pretty uh, decent, uh, beefy-length podcast. Um, and I, I, do, I, think, I, I think that this might be the longest one until I come back in January. Because uh, as I've been figuring out how to, like portion out content so that uh, I can have episodes go up every week even while I'm gone. I started doing that or endeavoring to do that a few years back and I've just kind of found myself just kind of holding myself to that standard whenever as much as possible. In early days I would say okay guys I'm taking three weeks off or two weeks off sorry there's not going to be a podcast but um, I think at some point there just ended up being enough releases and with like Netflix uh, and other streaming services giving me more things to review and talk about I would find it piling up and making you know the last episode in December before taking off on vacation way too crowded anyway and so I've realized you know I can split this up and have some episodes go up uh, throughout the time that I'm gone as well so that is what I'm endeavoring to do I'm not off grid yet I'll be going off grid on the the 15th is what I'm saying is my last day I actually probably will check my email one more time on the 16th which is a Friday, and then I'll be off until my first work day back, which I think will be January 4th, 3rd or 4th, I want to say. It's a Wednesday. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's just kind of an overarching view of, of what's coming up in December. But next week, if God allows it, I'll be sharing a review of Dragon Age Absolution, the new animated series coming to Netflix, which I uh, Dragon Age as a franchise really fell out of favor with me in some ways after the first one, Two took some major missteps mechanically that I just did not like. Inquisition definitely got things closer to origin, but still not on target with where I wanted to be. So uh, I'm not like a hardcore Dragon Age fan, but Dragon Age does draw aesthetic inspiration from that classic D&D world setting, whether that's um, Greyhawk or Forgotten Realms or even... Um, What's the other one? Dragonlance, you know. They all kind of have a similar crossover in uh, aesthetics that I just love. And I just don't get... I don't ever get sick of it. And Dragon Age very much has that aesthetic, as does, like, the Pathfinder games. And so whenever there's entertainment that draws from that well of inspiration, I'm like, I at least want to give this a try. And so, um, hopefully... Dragon Age Absolution will be something that I will enjoy talking about on the next episode. Also, a movie. This is also another foreign language movie, but it's on Netflix. I'm looking forward to checking out just because the premise looks so creative. It's called Hot Skull, and the trailer looks like it's a good quality movie. And I really have gotten used to reading subtitles over the years. I think it started with Stargate, the movie, way back in the day. Always wish that series would have kept everybody speaking in alien languages with subtitles um because it 
lent an air of of authenticity. It made me feel like we genuinely were experiencing an alien culture. And more and more in movies, I like it when, hey, if it's a couple Russian characters that are alone in a room together talking to each other, I want them to speak in Russian with subtitles and have these kind of international, give give a more authentic international vibe to movies that take place with different characters that would speak different languages in different circumstances and so I think I've just gotten more and more used to that and even appreciated it in some ways and so I'm very open more to to uh, uh, to subtitle foreign language experiences and that's what Hot Skull looks to be but the premise is it's like a pandemic type movie but this disease that makes people go crazy is passed not through like a virus or something it's somehow passed through sound through like and people when they start getting symptoms of this they will start babbling incoherently like they'll start a sentence and by halfway through it'll start to sound like they're talking about nonsense they're using real words but they're planking the cyborgs in the clover and you're like what <laughs> and when according to the to the trailer as soon as someone starts talking that way you need to get away from them and not listen to them talk because then that's how you can get infected is by listening to their insane babble um and it's really interesting i think there's i couldn't tell from the trailer but i think there's some real potential there for some thematic stuff maybe going on of how we can kind of infect each other potentially by the conversations we engage in i don't know i i I don't know i i see that an opportunity there whether or not they're going to take advantage of it i have no idea i can see maybe um gosh i could see a parallel to social media and how the more we enter into those online arenas where people are just being antagonistic we can get caught up in that and just add to the stink of the world and so could there be a metaphor there about social media that they're going to be playing with? I don't know. It seems ripe for that opportunity. But even if they don't play with that theme conceptually, I'm like, this is just way too creative for me to not try out. So that's called Hot Skull, and I uh, hope to be reviewing that next week. And then finally, as I think I mentioned earlier, uh, I, uh, I'm going to share some content talking about the the, the, the real spiritual value that I've discovered even in the nostalgic elements, even in the secular nostalgic elements of Christmas. And this is some content that I have shared before in the past, but it's been long enough that I was like, you know, yeah, I, I think I think we could put this on the table again because um, I don't even remember all that I said until I revisited it. And I was like, oh, yeah, OK, yeah. So hopefully it'll be something you guys find uh, valuable. Oh, my gosh. <sighs> dude with leaf blower have you guys been able to hear that i try sometimes when they're working outside i'm like okay just keep talking pater as long as you're talking they won't hear it near as much as you hear it unceasingly good gravy good freaking gravy Uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah, looking forward to revisiting that content, sharing it with you guys. Hopefully it'll be something that adds, uh, a layer of richness to your, your, uh, your Christmas season. 
Um, that's the hope anyway. But anyway, that's all that I'm planning for next week. Until then, please consider supporting the work of Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions and earning some fun rewards by becoming a Spirit Blade insider of any subscription tier over at patreon.com slash Productions. I would also be grateful for positive reviews wherever you find to be, happen to be, excuse me, finding this, uh, this podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this show, for putting up with leaf blowers. I hope you have a great week and that you'll join me next time here on the Christian Geek Central podcast as we continue to geek out and seek the truth. The Christian Geek Central podcast is a community supported endeavor of Spirit Blade Productions. This podcast is produced by Painter Fremson with support from the Christian Geek Central community at ChristianGeekCentral.com. For information about the latest entertainment and resources from Spirit Blade Productions, visit SpiritBlade.com. Thank you for listening. Oh,